This week on Twin Geek Cast 38, it's the largest Twin Geek Cast ever, as Bro, Calvin, and David examine the entire filmography of Quentin Tarantino. We're covering everything from Reservoir Dogs to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We'll also be taking a look at your box office. Enjoy the jam-packed show. The Twin Geek Cast theme is provided by AndrewNapierMusic.com. Alright, Quentin. Okay, I'm here. This is scary now. I don't know why this one, this one's scarier than the other podcast, because I feel like there's weight to it. Alien, I was like, eh, it's fucking alien. Fuck Ridley Scott. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what do you guys think about this Cats movie? Oh my god. Are we talking gosh. about Cats again? Oh, I, know, I, know, need- I know what David thinks about Cats. Oh my gosh. <laughs> he had ex- uh, illicit thoughts about Cats. You should or, see a therapist not for illicit. that, man. I'm, I, I don't know what they call that, but they call that something. Cat fever? Cat scratch fever? <laughs> Cat scratch fever. <laughs> All right, are we, are we here to air my dirty laundry again? Another week? You're the one that aired it first, man. Yeah, you brought this up <laughs> out of nowhere. Out of... <laughs> well, I didn't even know if it was going to make it into the podcast. I thought it was, as we mentioned, too illicit for our audience here. If you say that you can't here. climax because you're thinking of cats all day, <laughs> then, uh, yeah, that's going in the podcast. But you know what? I have the opposite <laughs> problem, so. Oh, oh, you can no. Only... Are you saying you can only climax when you're thinking about cats? Yeah, I've had the trailer running all week when I when I really need it to. It's so so. I guess the the one night of the year you go to town's Halloween, and uh... <laughs> the only night. <laughs> yeah, can't wait for next year to when we get all those sexy cats costumes. I don't think that's right? going to happen. <laughs> It'll be the year after, right? We have to have the fallout of everyone going to the movie, and this year will be all. Um, People dressed as us, like that cheap red outfit. Oh, oh I gosh. bet. That, that sounds like it'd be a really easy costume and you just grab a pair of scissors <laughs> right. or whatever. Do you, do, you think, uh, do you think Cats is the worst CGI we've seen this year? Yes. Yes? Not yeah, e- I, I, even worse than Sonic? Sonic was good, so... Yes, no. Everyone, you know, immediately I remember the reaction seeing as soon as the cast trailer dropped. You're like, you know, that Sonic trailer actually wasn't that bad. <laughs> it was so bad, it put everyone onto Sonic again. <laughs> yeah, well, that and the Lion King. Like, all the discussion leading up to the Lion King was complaining about how it's just pretty CGI. And then after the cast trailer dropped, everyone's like, well, actually, I like that now. Can we have that instead? Meanwhile, oh, the Sonic talk- designers are, like, reversing all their decisions and going back to that old art style. They probably should still, but... Yeah, they should. Y- yeah, but but in retrospect, it's like, okay, it could have been way worse than we were actually thinking. <laughs> could <laughs> I mean, that Taylor Swift cat just... Uh, it still bothers me that the black cat doesn't get to keep her skin color. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a weird thing, uh, especially in current culture and all that, but just a, a weird cast in general. Yeah. The big, fat James Corden cat, too. <sighs> I don't like James Corden at all. I don't know what it is. There's just something no, about no, him. There's, there's a very easy thing to explain about him. He's an annoying prick. That's what we don't <laughs> like about him. We're all on the oh, same man. page. I just don't say it. I just say I don't know to pretend I don't. See, see, this is this podcast is a safe space. Don't let the fact that this is going out on the internet where anyone can listen fool you. This is a safe place. You could admit anything, like your sexual issues with cats, for example. Oh, but, like, if I become ever, like, rich and famous and I go on the James Corden show, he's going to bring this up and then I have nothing to say other than, David was right. (laughs) Well, uh, since we mentioned Lion King earlier, do you guys want to go into the box office? Absolutely. 
yeah, let's uh, get through this. We're going to go real quick this week because we got a whole lot of other stuff to talk about. You, you say so. quick, but I just want to say because this is the first time I've been on the podcast since... Dane Cook is an American treasure, <laughs> and I am complimented and flattered that you compared my voice to him. I, it's not an insult to me. Oh. I, I, did, I didn't say it was an insult. I was just saying that is exactly what it sounded like. <laughs> All right, so it's number yeah. 10. All right, let's go on this. Bro, we're going to rely on you mostly for reactions since we've been doing this for weeks now. Uh, oh, let's no. start with number 10. Which is The Farewell, a film we've never heard of or talked about before. Go. I I uh, have not seen the trailer. However, I do know like the basic reaction, which is really positive. Because it's like it's about a Chinese family and like Chinese culture. Like you guys know about it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like no. the, you know, basically a grandmother's like dying. She has like an illness. And um, they don't really like address that like directly, they, like that culturally speaking so like they're doing like a wedding as like a final farewell for her and uh it's really touching it's it's really successful i guess like critically and uh aquafina like the lead is uh getting rave reviews um yeah she's getting a lot of attention lately it had a lot of attention at the end of sif so i want to check it out i think it now it's wide in theaters so uh, plenty opportunity now I think it's nice to see a lot more of these uh, culturally diverse films as well. What well, we had like Crazy Rich Asians as well last year, so there's obviously an audience for them. I don't recall uh, any other decade prior where we had like big, you know, cultural, you know, single uh, ethnicity casts like this. You know, really big, be big in the box office and just the cultural discussion. Well, I think it's also just more respectful because, like, even like back then when they did do like single uh, culture or single ethnic casts. A lot of it was like comedies. Like I, a lot of it was like not necessarily disrespectful, but it wasn't necessarily like actually trying to cater to them. It was more so just sort of like a a shallow thing. Whereas these sort of films, like Farewell, uh, have a little bit more nuance to them. Right. All right. I, I said we're going quick, but I gotta pick it up a bit more. All right. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's that's see. fine. Yeah. N- number nine. We got Annabelle comes home. She comes home. All right. Number eight. <laughs> they told me to go fast. All right, fast it is then. Eight, eight uh, we got Stuber. That movie looks so terrible. <laughs> Calvin watched it uh, a bit earlier. He said we walked out. How is Dave Batista? Because that's the only reason I wanted to see the film. Uh, I guess Calvin walked out of the conversation as I well. Had to oh, go turn oh, off there, the there, baby there, monitor there. <laughs> there, there, there he is. We're, we're talking about Stuber, and uh, oh. Bro was wondering about Dave Batista. Yeah, it's about a stupid Uber driver. His name's Stu, and he drives an Uber. It's Stuber. You've lost me. You have completely lost me. That pitch was terrible. That's the only pitch <laughs> I have. Look, the the pitch for the movie in general was terrible. Did you see the trailer? Well, like, they've been doing this pitch forever because, like, Uber's the new taxi, and how many stupid taxi driver movies have there been? <laughs> I just remember the one with Jimmy Fallon and Queen Latifah. Look, I'm done with Stuber. All right, we're going to Aladdin. <laughs> All right, seven is Aladdin, yes. Bro, thoughts I, on Aladdin? We've all talked about Aladdin. Here's the thing. Calvin's really anti-Aladdin. This has got to be better than Lion King. No. I completely get where people are coming from. Where it's like it's got more appeal. There's nothing to this. Just because There's another movie's bad doesn't suddenly make your movie good. I'm. We're not doing things on the metric of good to bad. We're doing things on 
want to watch versus not want to watch. And in that aspect, Aladdin has, like, things that offer, like, the music, for instance. Like, the music <laughs> hasn't been tarnished. Uh, it's colorful. You, you can't say it's not colorful. I, it, and uh, it has I'm running out of it. things. <laughs> it has colors and music doesn't. in it. Okay? Lion King does not have colors in it. I, so, like, where are we going here? I mean, it has colors in it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I do see the point. I see that uh, I agree with the idea that Aladdin potentially has more to offer. That doesn't mean it delivers on any by any means. Like, Aladdin I can absolutely see being a worse picture because it just fails at everything it does, whereas The Lion King just kind of will, will boringly retread things in but new La- CGI rendered Lion way. King invented new tech that's really important, so uh, in the future it'll be looked back on, and Aladdin never will be. Uh, counterpoint, uh, let's move on to number five yesterday. <laughs> All right, it was no, uh, number six, actually. Five is where it was last week. Six, oh. it dropped a spot. Yes, you're looking at the wrong numbers, bro. Oh, dang. What a mess. I can't right. read. <laughs> what are we on? Um, this is my job. Stop I, reading I the numbers. This is my job. The, I haven't seen the film. So, um, I like the Beatles more than you guys, I think, and uh, I-, I kept up with them whoa, a little bit whoa, more. But... Whoa, more? I don't know about that. Maybe you know more, but I don't know about like more. Sure, I'm not going to fight about how much I like something. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we all like the Beatles. Let's just, you know, let's approach this as a group here. We like the Beatles. But this yes. reminds me of, like, Across the Universe, where it's sort of like, a, they... I feel like Hollywood wants to make Beatles biopics, but they know it's a bad idea, so they just make tribute movies. It's true, they can't get a biopic off the ground. I wonder if they just won't let them. Yeah, and then it's like, let's make a movie that's kind of like that with Beatles songs in it, and maybe people will see it. And that makes me, like, really skeptical of the film. And Ed Sheeran, Mm -hmm. you know. Oh, Oh, yeah, he looks awful in that trailer. (laughs) He's in it a lot, too. This isn't just cameo Sheeran. Uh, that's that's the worst. You know, everyone already didn't like it when he popped up in Game of Thrones. Why would they like him in a Beatles? Oh movie yeah, this now? isn't just popping up. This is like he's a, he's a good friend of the main character and and helps him out and brings him on his tour and he's around. Oh man, <laughs> it's it's rough. Uh, what do we and, have uh, before this? Uh, let's see here. Number four, we have Toy Story. What 4. about five? Ah, damn it. We're getting all the numbers Hey, hey up. David, let me do this, all right? <laughs> all right, fine. You do you do five here. Crawl. And I haven't seen the movie yet, but I really want to because Sam Raimi. And also, this is my my neck of the woods. Yeah. This is, you know, this I've done this every day, man. Hurricane this with the true. Gators. Yeah, man, I do it. I've seen Crawl. This is, this is a... I've seen it twice now. Oh, is it that yeah. good? Yeah, yeah, I really like it. Is there a review on the site? There is. Yeah, I reviewed yeah. it already. Ooh, I'm gonna read that. And uh, yeah, I like it because the girl swims for the Florida Gators, so you know that she's gonna be swimming with Gators. And that's good foreshadowing. It's brilliant. It's it's high level <laughs> Florida style storytelling. It is. And that's how that's, I like that's it. The, it's the level of intellectualism you're working with in this film. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, I could tell that the uh, French horror director here, he's very comfortable with this kind of house setting. I just watch High Tension, and it plays into a lot of that. I like Crawl a lot. Yeah, it seems like it's generally just a fun summer flick. We need more of those kind of disposable but easily entertaining kind of summer movies. Absolutely. And you, and you uh, liked number four, Toy Story 4, correct? Yeah, I had a good time with Toy Story 4. I don't want to see it again, though. 
if you could rank the Toy Story movies right now, what would you do? Uh, oh God! <laughs> it's done. Never mind. <laughs> uh, one, four, three, two. I didn't realize you liked four that much. That's crazy. No, I, I, I oh, do. I've seen a, I've seen a little bit of backlash against it as of late because it does somewhat undercut, you know, the message of three and the the sentimental send off of that. But you know, it sounds like in general the reception is still very positive on the film, and they pulled off one last great sequel before they're going to shut the book on this forever. Hopefully, <laughs> God, don't make another. <laughs> oh, David, you're so funny. Let's move on to Spider Man Far From Home at number three. It's okay. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't go see this one. I talked about going to see this one because I like Spider Man, but like, I just the motivation never came. I'm like, and I, I actually was interested. I'm like, Mysterio is a great Spider Man villain. Yes, like, Mysterio check this out. is a great Spider Man villain. Even in this film, Mysterio is probably the best part of it. He is. Yeah, I agree. I, Some of the stuff where Spider Man's going into Mysterio's realm is really interesting to me. Oh, I just had no motivation to go see it. I think I think the the kind of uh, fatigue, the Marvel fatigue, is very real. Yeah, and uh, how how you feel about Homecoming is sort of like not doubled down because Tony Stark's not there, but like the worst part of the film is probably the Nick Fury stuff, and then it's the teenage drama if you can't handle it, and then the best part mm-hmm. is the actual superhero stuff. So that's really how it's you know that's the appeal there. Right. Well, it's just. I know for me, like, part of the issue with the MCU Spider-Man is that he's very much an MCU Spider-Man. They don't give him a chance to be the Spider-Man we know and love as a full character. He's very bound by what's going on with the Avengers and everything. Yes. Do you want to move on to number two, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? How do you want to uh, do well, this we'll since s- we're about to talk about it? Well, let's just look at the box office. It made uh, $40 million and it's in about 4,000 theaters. It- uh, it had a good take in, but uh, I don't think it'll look like anything next to number one here. Oh my god! Right, there's a Lion King still raking in an insane amount of money, almost twice as much as Hollywood did in its opening weekend. Unfortunately, here. We, we ran out of time here, and we just need to get to Tarantino. So sorry for Lion King second week in a row. We just <laughs> we just can't we'll, fit it. We'll in. do it. We'll do it next time. You know, every time you do that, now Lion King is going to stay number one for like a month. Just <laughs> so, like in spite of us moving past it. Yeah. All right. So go ahead. No, yeah, it's specifically working against us, but that's okay. We'll let it sit there for now, because it would probably stay regardless. <laughs> Are we ready to get onto the list, guys? Oh, man. Yeah. All right, so so the Tarantino list. The when list. are you doing the sample? Like, when, when are you putting in the sound bites? Yeah, so I'll say it, and then, you know, we'll, we'll give a, a second. A second, maybe, no more. You know, and then we'll have the clip in there. It'll play a little bit. There'll be lots of fucks and maybe an N-word or two. Who knows? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) You just want me to find all all the N-words and insert them? (laughs) Sure, we'll just have, like, an N-word remix tape going throughout the podcast here. That'll that'll get us taken down faster than anything else. Done and done, I I suppose. (laughs) All right, Toon Geeks canceled. See you guys again. (laughs) Speaking of canceled, let's get to Tarantino. Okay, fine. Let's start with our list. We spent a long time the past month rewatching all the films together as a site, kind of weighing in, arguing about things, going at each other's throats, but we found the the most close solution, kind of like we did with our Coen Brothers list, and we're going to start at our bottom here. here. Let's, uh, let's just explain and, our method here, though. We all put in votes, sure. so we have a large number of, what would you say, like nine, ten people that put in their ballots here. Yeah, 
and you know it wasn't all like counted up necessarily it was again it was a discussion based format here where we all kind of argued and debated and you know uh compromised for our various favorites and picks to to find the most representative list i just remember when we did other side of the wind for film of the year people were like you didn't describe your method it, it's just like a okay here it's obvious we put in votes that inspires discussion uh this is discussion based and uh it's not um every list is so individually different especially for this one that uh it's more of a staff representation of uh what we want to go out on the site really than anything individual yeah, and i guess we should have the disclaimer that we tried really really hard to make everyone happy we and did. it's and it's not easy to make everybody happy never so right well because a big thing as well is that a number system wouldn't necessarily be fairly representative is because you know even though a bunch of people would have a certain ones at a higher rent you know it's not necessarily the the disparity between the selections may be much if, bigger if you did it by numbers especially near the end death proof would be in the middle <laughs> it would <laughs> <laughs> and it- which is not the case because some people really don't like death proof that's the thing is that you got to consider the the passion for which people care about particular entries you know someone may put death proof at the bottom but they may put it like way at the bottom you know i think certain outlooks really change depending on our rewatches too if we want to talk more about our process at least us three went through like most of these movies they were easy to binge they were very easy to binge super easy i I had a hard time finding time because tarantino likes to make really long movies Mm -hmm. but you know other than that i i had no problem jumping in from one to another again that consistent style makes it easy to kind of ride the wave and the fact that he doesn't have a ton you know that makes it easier too I think that was another but problem yeah. we ran into with uh, bringing all the staff in on this because we've expanded a lot since the last one. Is that uh, there's fewer movies, we have more staff. Like when we did Cohen's, it was like, okay, no country goes on top. That's already done, <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, and there's a bunch of films like some people only had one opinion on. Like you, what? You were the only person who'd seen Intolerable Cruelty, so you basically <laughs> got to decide where that one ended up. And that was fine. Yeah. And everyone was like, okay, we roll with that. So at this one, we've all seen seen all the movies. That makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. Because everyone's got an opinion, and everyone's going to try and insert that opinion. (laughs) uh, uh, We actually put Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in this, which is why we didn't talk about in the box office. And I also want to say, for a disclaimer, to make, you know, uh, a lot of the people on staff did not get to see the film (laughs) yet before this moment. So, it, the, technically, this is not representative of their opinions on that. We sort of put it on just so we're able to talk about it. And it's a general idea of the people who've seen its opinion. We'll also have right, a, well, a the, lot of spoilers for that film in particular, so be wary of that. And uh, just skip mm-hmm. when we get to it. Yes, but this list should be our general representation for the site. As long as Tarantino doesn't make another film, this is going to be our you know quote-unquote definitive ranking but of course with all lists you know it's very subjective and next week we'll probably have a different feeling about some of these films and you know it'll change you know and that'll be an interesting thing to talk about as well is because i certainly had dramatic changes in my ranking of tarantino before and after marathoning all these again i think that really brings us into our our uh, ninth place movie yeah, let's start there. Uh, ninth place, which I think the general consensus we all kind of came down on was nine here. We're going to start with Reservoir Dogs, the very first film Tarantino made.
yeah, I, I think the big thing definitely was that I found that this was one of those films I really enjoyed as a teenager first getting into film, but now I'm like, mm, you know, it's a little more amateur than I kind of thought. Yeah. <laughs> I remember watching Specifically it. Specifically the... I watched it a lot when I was about 15 years old, and it's one of those things you come across when you're first getting an understanding of cinema, and you understand all these techniques, and very it's a very straightforward, laid-out way to look at uh, movie making and kind of like the art of cinematography is uh, kind of expanding into this really early uh, first movie of Tarantino's. Yeah, this is probably my most seen Tarantino film just because like, yeah, when I was a teen, this this was on repeat all the time. Exactly. And for me. Yeah. And uh, th- I think that that like held up really well due to its soundtrack and stuff, uh, which we'll talk about. But yeah, as far as things go, you can see that this was early and you can see the proto forms of what ideas and concepts and techniques would splinter into. Like you can see the seeds that would grow into other films, but this here is just seeds. Oh, I think, uh, I think one thing in particular I noticed watching like immediately in the opening, it kind of sets the tone and the idea for you going on because you get that signature Tarantino type dialogue with the, the like a virgin conversation. But here in Reservoir Dogs, that one is totally devoid of substance. It's a, it's a kind of pointless idea that Tarantino inserted in because he had this controversial take on, on the song. And it doesn't really reflect something like the opening of Pulp Fiction instead later, where that is really character building. You know, there's a lot of, that's another big thing with Reservoir Dogs, that there are characters that just flat out do not matter in the film. I think he still does that. We can talk about when we get to Once Upon a Time, but I still think he he has like one or two things he wants to like go on a soapbox about, and he'll put it to a character. Like uh, I think of Inglorious Bastards and King Kong. It's like he just wants to say his little mini King Kong essay. (laughs) <laughs> right well yeah he had the clever idea with that but i think he certainly handles it with better tact later on like it doesn't you know help that the whole opening conversation is literally just dick 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 you know it's a it's a lot of dick <laughs> it is it's ridiculous ridiculous <laughs> but what did what do we like about the film again i think i think soundtrack wise it's very smart because they actually weave the soundtrack into the narrative because it's like a sort of 70s weekend right and then it sort of decorates every scene i think what you were saying about some of the seeds of tarantino too that it's um without this he doesn't have those things to pull from like even if they're foundational parts and they're rough around the edges he's able to refine those and finesse them in every other movie yeah, like you get his his usual style flourishes here, the kind of uh, you know unconventional story structure here with all the flashbacks thrown in. You got um, you know a lot of the cinematography choices, like the spinning camera, uh, the trunk shot is of course the first you know time we get a Tarantino trunk shot here, which is done in a really brilliant way because you know it's it's this kind of reveal. You get the anticipation of it when you get their reactions from shooting up inside the trunk and then cut to the reverse where you see the cop who's great in this by the way i think he's the, the best actor here he's you, you know he seems really terrified throughout i really buy that i disagree the best actor oh. here is above and beyond michael madsen mm-hmm. i Holy like that crap pick. for me 
Yeah, dude. Like, I think I think Michael Madsen as uh, Mr. Blonde here is probably Madsen's best in uh, any Tarantino film. He, he isn't given as much in other films. But here, that sort of cold demeanor, yet sort of like warm, psychotic smile definitely makes him magnetic whenever he's on the screen. At least for me. And then uh, Roth as uh, Mr. Orange is also good. I think when they're in the warehouse and he's uh, bleeding to death, it works a little less for me. But like the flashbacks with Roth also like gave me a lot of mileage for the film. Those are the flashback sequences I like. I like the stuff with Roth because it does give insight to his character and like where he has to tell the fake conversation, you know, the fake story about the the marijuana, you know, dropping all that and the cops in the bathroom. That's like one of the the better scenes from the film, I think. The other flashback sequences are some of the more uh, empty ones, you know. Like sometimes I think that the film would be even better if you didn't show everything and if you left it more ambiguous, like you're kind of you know, the kind of pop boiler film we got going on here. I feel like that's the amateur's mistake or the debut movie mistake is to show far too much. Well, that's still Tarantino's style. You know, he shows every flashback, you know, he can, and we'll get into that, especially even with this latest one. You know, we'll talk about the excessive flashbacks that he goes on we, tangents with. We also want to be positive because uh, uh, at least one staff member has this as their favorite. And uh, Yeah, I, I think it's like two or three. It's it's easy to just want to dump on a film when you, you know, because negative criticism is so much easier than positive criticism, especially when it's a film we've all collectively come down on. Like, Reservoir Dogs, to me, kind of represents that burgeoning film interest. You know, directors like Tarantino and Fincher and, you know, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, they kind of represent those people who kind of hook you immediately because they have an immediate identifiable style and that, you know, kind of up-and-coming, you know, uh, approach to filmmaking. But as you kind of mature more and learn more about film and, you know, how extensive it is, you know, you kind of grow away from that. At least that's what I've found, especially in regards to Tarantino. He's a great entry point, but not necessarily the top of the, the pile I don't think here. you want to sure. end with Tarantino. I think it's a good beginning. Um, the last thing I'll say about it is, and to go along with all this, because I just now remembered it, is I remember l- listening to and watching the Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel review on Reservoir Dogs when it came out, and their opinion on it was very similar to ours, yeah. which was, was they liked the style, they liked the content, but they felt it a little bare bones, and they were like, we can't wait for what's next, because what's next will for sure be better. There's not a ton of substance in Reservoir Dogs. I see how it's a great beginning, and how it's a uh, very important to beginning the style that would come in the 90s, like at that point in time. I think we're looking at it with like our lenses on of seeing every other Tarantino movie, but uh, if you go back then and look at it in like that early 90s lens, it's really important. Oh, I think another big thing you, you get from it as well is that you maybe not realize, but this is also the beginning of Tarantino's uh, kind of idea thievery style, I'm going to call it. You know, it's it's an homage in a way, but it's also kind of just, you know, stripping lots of ideas, and he does a, a lot of that. But he's, uh, and it, it kind of starts here because the whole premise with uh, Reservoir Dogs, you probably, people don't realize generally, is taken from Hong Kong action film called City on Fire from 1988, I believe. And I don't think it necessarily takes away from the film because of that. I think it's just a kind of it, it opens your eyes a little more to Tarantino. The more you and, and, go and watch go. old movies, the more you discover what Tarantino's actually been lifting and inspired by here. Oh yeah, for sure. And this is probably one of the more blatant ones. Sometimes it's a little bit more respectful. Sometimes it's a little bit more 
inspirational and less blatant. This one's but, just the uh, whole yeah. plot, though. So, you know. Yeah. Right. It's it's stylistically very different from City on Fire, obviously, but it is the exact same plot, even kind of culminating in the same I mean, finale. Just there. go look at the log line for that movie on your letterbox. It's it's the same movie. I think you can you could look at it though as kind of appropriate because I mean if you think about it, one of Tarantino's biggest influences is, you know, Sergio Leone, who kind of kickstarted his career by stealing an idea from Kurosawa. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I think he I think he takes from that that you could steal from the other cultures that haven't been represented within your own because that's enough context to make it new that people won't question it because they haven't seen it. Right, that doesn't necessarily make it right, but you know we give Tarantino a pass a lot of time because, like I said, we, he typically tweaks or changes things enough, and when he doesn't. You know, that's more unfortunate, but, you know, it's not the worst. At the end of the day, this is a great movie. It's good. It's great. It's yeah. fine. I won't say, <laughs> I'm not saying capital G great, but it's great. No, no, like, all of these movies on here are worth seeing, no debate. You know, if, I, yeah, if, I, if you ever have it on the TV or even if they're showing it in a theater, check it out, man. There's no reason to not see this film. Coming out of this, I think, especially with all these rewatches, I can say definitively that Tarantino does not have a bad film. No. He's had a great track record doing that. And I think being selective about what he goes forth with on projects has been you know, very important in that. But, yeah, I think uh, we can move on to number eight then safely, guys, yeah. right? What is number right, eight, uh, David? Number eight here is Death Proof. Yeah, it is. <laughs> So yeah, Death Proof is typically considered by the collective, even be- I, I considered it as well before rewatching again the quote unquote worst Tarantino film. And uh, I feel like I've been saying it's possibly the best. I don't know about that, but it's really no, really good. No. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is good. I I found well, the big thing was that I, I still have lots of issues with it. It's by no means perfect, but it is fun. And that's, I think, an important aspect of this here, whereas some of the films get more boring in areas. But Death Proof is really, really fun. There's boring moments to Death Proof, even, because I think this movie's heavy on dialogue at points, and the characterizations are sometimes uh, lacking. But that being said, yeah, when when there's a high, it's a real high for the film. And uh, there's a lot to like about it. I, I said once that... The, the parts are greater than the sum, and it's kind of a hard concept to get around, but, like, you'll see the movie, and you'll see little things about it, and that'll make the film special, not the entire picture. Yeah. So, uh... I think the whole picture is a lot of fun, <laughs> though, taken, like, as a whole project. Uh, but it's hard to look at it that way when it's come in two parts, because it's just half of the... Uh, grindhouse presentation that we all saw in theater, right? So. Oh, and right. this well, is yeah, I above guess and beyond better than Planet Terror. Holy shit! I think so. Uh, by far, you know, I, 
I'm inclined to disagree with that, but I think the general consensus is. But I got to rewatch Planet Terror again. I have always liked Planet Terror, but because of you know the the style it chose to, and it kept consistent throughout. But yeah, that that is an important context to add here is that Death Proof is half of a feature here. It was a big thing he did with Robert Rodriguez in 2007, where they wanted to revive this idea of a grindhouse film, which most people didn't really know about. You know, the kind of uh, lower budget, you know, sleazy films you'd get on a you know double bill in a drive-in theater, effectively. And it's fun because you r- rarely ever get a double bill that's just one feature. So uh, it has like the intermission and the things you're not used to. And that was like a small revelation to like uh, middle school or high school Calvin, whatever I was back then. Right. Well, and they also had a bunch high of school, trailers uh, made by other filmmakers. Like I know uh, they had Edgar Wright do a trailer for Rob kind of Zombie's right. She Werewolves of the SS was fantastic. <laughs> that was the so best good. thing I've ever seen. <laughs> But as for the film itself, um, you know, it's it's kind of interesting because we talk about how, you know, Death Proof is, not only is it two parts of all we hear, but it's also two parts in its own way. It's kind of two different exploitation films put together. It's a slasher film in the beginning, but it's also a kind of 70s, you know, Steve McQueen car chase film in the second half. Uh, around that period with, like, this and Kill Bill, he was working in, like, films as two parts in some like a duality way, but uh, in this one, it's like a exploitation film where the payoff happens with a separate group of people, which is interesting. Yeah, and, and there's nice parallels between them. Let me ask you guys, which group of girls do you like more? The second one's a lot of fun. The first one's good for introduction to the to the guy, but uh, they I have know. similar dialogue. Like I remember little parallels between like what they say because like they say things like, "Oh, what'd you do with him? Oh, everything but," and like they <laughs> they do like little little things that make you feel scared for them, like you were in the first half. But mm-hmm. then like when Zoe Bell comes in as a stunt woman, like and you see the action set pieces and the great stunt work involved, like. It becomes actually really fun. And Zoe Bell is so great in those pieces. Zoe Bell is really great in this film, and it's the only time she's great in a Tarantino film. Because then he insists on putting her in cameos throughout the rest of his filmography, and it gets really obnoxious. It's already bad enough Mm -hmm. that we have to deal with kind of forced Tarantino cameos, but then we have Zoe Bell cameos to worry about as well. But she she gets an actual character here. Like, she's playing herself, but she actually is part of the story and has interests and motivations and things going on, so it's not like she's just, like, stuck in. You know, there's a purpose to her being here, and it makes sense. My favorite uh, yeah. shot in the film is the diner shot where Zoe Bell and Rosario Dawson and all those girls in the second half are, you know, talking about, you know... Do you, are you carrying a gun? Yes, and all that. And the camera does the sweep around, and I, and I love the sweep. And you can even see Kurt Russell in the background because Kurt Russell in this film is fantastic. He was the reason why I used to see this movie a bunch because I, I I love me some Kurt, and uh, yeah, he's got the right amount of scary to him, the right amount of funny and pitiful near the end as well. Oh yeah, so at the end, that's that's one of the best things, and I've seen Tarantino do this a couple times since as well, is that he just makes him this pathetic baby at the end of the film when he's when everything's finally been turned on him. But up until then, he's got a great balance of like you know that undeniable Kurt Russell charm, and then that also that malice in that character where he clearly gets off on this kind of you know violence and you know killing here going on and he's great in that first half of the film that that weird you know off-putting you know uh upfrontness about him and it's fun to see what will come in uh the next 
or the the newest movie with him working with the stuntman and uh, what he thinks about these people that were like on the fringes of Hollywood, which is always where Tarantino really finds the heart of his movies. And I feel like Kurt Russell's stuntman also finds uh, something of like the dispossessed and and uh, something horrifying. It like dips into moments of horror with the with the locked car seat. Yeah, I. I do have a question for you guys about Kurt Russell's character, though. There's at one point in the first half where he he has a whole bit about putting people down in a book. <laughs> the John Wayne yeah. impersonation. Yes. They're going because in the book. He pulls out his John Wayne impression from Big Trouble in Little China, and then he does this whole bit about being in the book. And, it, and it's a really weird thing because it's just so, it's like a lengthy bit that doesn't really mean much and the book doesn't come into account anything later. I don't know, it's really odd. I think it's just a throwback to that bit he likes. I, I, think, I think personally, Tarantino, the way he probably writes characters is when he has a character, especially someone as important as Stuntman Mike, he probably makes a backstory for them and gives them little gimmicks for audience members and himself to latch onto. And Mike was probably a little lacking in certain ways because he's sort of just like a uh, an old wolf predator you know, type guy. So he gave him the book to be more like fashioned into that cowboy... Uh, modern cowboy aesthetic. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I see that that idea that he gave him a whole backstory and had is all these odd quirks that make him a more full character, I guess. Something you do for a, a, a novel, I guess, more so than you would have filmed like this. Yeah, it's just weird that it pops up that one time and that's it. It's more organic <laughs> in other films, but uh, yeah, I, I assume that's what he was doing there. I, I, mean, I think so. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't mind Kurt Russell pulling out the John Wayne impressions because it's always hilarious when he does it. It's just, it's, it was odd for a one scene like that. <laughs> and it's a funny place for Kurt Russell to have pulled it from, too. My, my favorite mm. part is when he uh, smiles at the camera. R- when, uh, when uh, what's her name? Um, when the girl gets in his car and then, like, the other car drives away and then he just stares at the camera for, like, two seconds and smiles. I was like, ooh, Kurt, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Great touch. I do love, of course, you know, both between Planetary and Death Proof, that, uh, the beginning of Death Proof anyway, the style of scratching all the film and making it look old and, you know, sometimes it's really heavy in the beginning of Death Proof, though, and it lets up, like, repeated shots and the stuff they do, like, like, Tarantino just puts it all in in the beginning of Death Proof and then kind of lays off for a while, and then you get to the halfway mark and it becomes a totally different film. Yeah, it cleans the image as it goes, for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's used for the edit because uh, I've seen I've seen this film a lot actually, um, and the theatrical version is very different from the full full cut. And that first half of the film with all those sort of fake trickery is used to full effect in um, mm-hmm. in those cuts. Mm-hmm. So I, I do have one more question, at least about Death Proof, before we move on, and I want to talk about the problematic implications of leaving Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character with this hillbilly who clearly is some intent to rape her. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> I, I just I feel like we need to get that out there and address that. Yeah, that's that's kind of a problematic thing you've written there as a joke. Well, well, the good news is if he thinks about cats, it won't happen. So let's just hope. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, so what's uh, next on our list? All right, next. Moving on here. We do have... Now we got a lengthy discussion here because we have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood here as our number seven. Uh, I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. 
That your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> oh, the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? No, I'm a stuntman. Look at me. So you still direct, huh? Still here. You can do anything you want to him. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. Not a TV cowboy. You're better than that. I think Leo and Pitt carry this film. I mean, I think they have to. I think that they're the leads, and it feels like they work well off each other. Tarantino gets interesting material out of both of them oh you like so, this so, yeah. you like this film way more than me and david right calvin i think so yeah yeah so i'll say this especially in regards to leo and uh pitt as well and that uh the fact that the film was touted so long as uh tarantino's manson script and that you know the discussion of the manson murders being in the background of the story for so long was the discussion around the film was very misleading because this really is more about Leo's aging Western TV star character and his relationship with his stuntman. And then the Manson stuff just is sort of going on simultaneously in the background until it collides in the end in a weird, different way. He, he uses that historical information, like, this is going to happen at this time, to sort of create the suspense for the audience. I can't imagine watching this film and not knowing that those people are real, because... If you don't have that sort of historical context, there's very little suspense in the film for a good period of time then. Right, I was You should really know though. I was discussing this with someone who who I knew was much who's much younger and they didn't know like I blew their mind by informing them that M- Manson and Tate and everyone else in Polanski involved are real people. Yeah. <laughs> That's horrifying. Well, I mean, I, I understand uh, a general person, especially younger than me. Who, oh, you know, yeah. I understand them not knowing about it. Like, uh, <laughs> earlier someone said something on, in the chat about not knowing about the Titanic. And that the Titanic was a real thing. But I'm like, Titanic happened over 100 years ago and all that happened was a boat sank. Who, how many people need to know that? Right. Well, I think the good thing is that Tarantino doesn't need to bow into like people that don't know something, right? Like he has the confidence in his audience that they're intelligent and they they know a little bit of history. And not just that, but it's fine. Uh, honestly, the film doesn't really need it for most of it. No. Right, the big no, thing... That, everyone that I've talked to that's seen it knows about it. I mean, who doesn't know about Manson? Well, the thing is, is that, especially as well, one thing is that Manson is almost not a character in the film. He shows up for a scene early on, and then he's gone, which is really weird because... Really? He's, a, he's an important part of the trailer. Like, they focus on him in the trailer, but that's literally his single scene. Really, it's Tate that is the connective tissue and the reason that Tarantino made the film. Like, right. he, he had this idea about the two Western guys, right? But then... It's really Tate that pushed him to like pull it together into like a. He found the direction of where to go with it with her. Well, and that's the thing is that the film makes perfect sense if you don't know about Tate and the Manson murders and all of that. You know, it plays fine. You know, and you'll be none the wiser that you're missing out on something. But what you do miss is that the for the purpose behind the story and the then you know revisionist aspects that come with it in the finale. But we'll get to that. 
I, th- I think the film is largely Tarantino's fa- fantasy, and at its best, it works as a fantasy for the viewer and audience as well. And to me, some of the dodgier bits are when he's sort of doing it for himself. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. One of the big things I walked out feeling is that the film does not have good pacing, especially in the balancing between the different stories and feeling like we're hitting certain plot beats. It feels like it meanders for a long time in the middle before something happens. Day two. I don't feel that way so much. I feel like we're just hanging out with the characters and that it slows us down to their pace of lifestyle, and I like that I can see that because one of our staff members, Jesse, compared this to Jackie Brown, and I get feelings of that. Jackie Mm -hmm. Brown's also a sort of a hangout movie. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there, there's actual plot beats in Jackie Brown there and we hit things you as we correct. come across. Whereas the plot beats here, there's just like a long stretch before, you know, where we're just hanging out with, um, you know, Rick Dalton for a long time while he's doing all of this work and existential crisising over, you know, Western TV store before he finally decides to take the Italy, you know, prospect that's set up in the opening of the film, you know, and then quickly rush through all that. <laughs> I'd say, like, the film was, like, a complete breeze for me. Like, it felt like nothing for, like, two hours, 41 minutes. It it felt like I was just getting I there. disagree. I, I think, um, I think, yeah, I, no. think <laughs> I think sometimes, I, I, I compare this probably to, like, a plane trying to get off the ground. Sometimes it will soar up in the air, and other times it will, it will come back down to the ground, and then I'll be like, oh, man. I didn't get that at oh, all. I, no, I think but, uh, we're talking about why it's better than the last two, right? <laughs> like, we're talking about. Oh, yeah, about... and we need to get, we're just talking about the film in general. Yeah, but yeah yes, I mean, this, this is probably the time to talk about the film in general, so that that's my initial impressions. I will say, in in defense of this, especially over Death Proof and Reservoir Dogs, is that this is sort of a f- fully developed style. And even then, you see new things that Tarantino does and has never done before. And that's really impressive here. And Jesse's saying it may be his favorite Tarantino film. So we have to consider that uh, I, I came out of it really high on it, and I think it will really improve from repeat viewing. I love I love Robbie in it. God, she is just like luminous and if there's anyone else in the frame, she like attracts all the attention. Like she's like just like a light comes on, like she's the only person that could do this role. See, I think the film in general just has kind of a somewhat mixed reception right now, generally positive as we're all coming out of, you know, the high of the film and whatnot, but I've got a more feeling is that you know, people will average out on the film over time. There's lots of high praise right now, but then we'll have more like takes like me and Bro have right now, where it's more mixed. I think in in, in I a think general what's sense. like the I think once like the Twitter police goes away and stops like the annoying like cancel Tarantino thing, I think it will uh, probably balance out and be on a lot of end of year well, lists. Honestly. Well, I think the, oh, yeah. I think the real difference between like Calvin's opinion and my opinion is like. I think Calvin completely surrenders to the the fantastic high moments where there's magic to the screen, especially with Robbie or even some of the Dalton stuff. Some of the Dalton stuff is amazing, and I, his stuff is the is. best. I think. I mean, it's his story. I think throughout. Yeah, and, and I think I, so. I, I'm I'm less willing to surrender to magic, but that means ultimately that I enjoy the film less. So dang for me. Yeah, let, let, again, let's not get it wrong here. We enjoyed the film i had a good time though i walked out feeling so i, I ranked by the this end. higher than the, it is ranked it's, now i i'm ranking it in the middle of the pack for me i think it's much better than reservoir Dogs. oh for sure yeah I, I, there's I, a lot of stuff going on in this movie 
it's like full of stuff and Tarantino is yeah, and, and but also new ideas which is Yeah, great. and if we were to go by the death proof measure of, you know, the the parts and the sum, this has amazing parts. This has fantastic moments and, and images that carry with you. I just want to say I'm so fucking tired of like the earnest serial killer movies <laughs> and having them portrayed as heroes and shit. I love this different portrayal that has energy and creativity behind it. If I had to see like one more movie, like my friend Dahmer or uh, what's the Netflix one, the extremely, oh, extremely vile, vile, wicked. And, yeah, that thingy. If I have to sit through one more thing that's bullshit like that, I get, <laughs> this is just like a savior of like that kind of cinema where it uh, uh, finds some truth and human element behind this, and all of it is in tape. Yeah, yeah. He goes for the he he goes for redeeming, not even redeeming, but like sort of bringing back to life and reviving Tate more so than exploring Manson. And that's really, that's really amazing here. Right. Well, and, and that's why we have those lengthy sequences of her, like admiring her name on the poster and all that and celebrating, you know, the joys she's bringing to people in cinema. And, you know, those are all great sequences. It's, that's part of the pacing problem I thought I was talking about because it doesn't feel like that's leading to something with the plot at hand until we get to the finale. And we're barely talking about Rick Dalton and Cliff. Who are the and I main think we characters of the film? Yeah, yeah. We th- those are really the compelling parts of what I enjoyed the most. You know, especially Rick's character. I loved immediately coming out of this this hilarious performance by Leo as this kind of over the hill you know Hollywood diva. Especially just coming off of his Oscar win. You know, this is the first role he's doing after that. I I think cancel culture has some. I I don't agree with them, but I definitely understand some of the things they say because. I definitely see a lot of Tarantino in Rick in that he he feels like he's slowly becoming irrelevant and he's really insecure about it. But then there's a moment of like, no, you've still got it. You're you're still an amazing artist and you can push through it. I definitely see that sort of therapy in this film. Yeah, I, I think I'm certainly inclined to agree with that. Uh, you know, he certainly abuse Rick with that kind of characteristic that, you know, uh, losing faith in himself uh, in some ways. Though I don't know if Tarantino is losing faith in himself as a director, but maybe maybe his relevancy. Yeah, he, yeah, I, I think he's worried about he times changing. Yeah, more than his it's, skills, per se. It's really regressive the way that they go back to the Westerns, and uh, just their feeling about old cinema in general is very negative between... Um, uh, what's the name? Rick, Rick, and what's the other guy's name? Cliff. Uh, uh, Cliff. Sorry. Uh, between Rick and Cliff, I feel like they're really regressive Hollywood heroes, and uh, it's something new that uh, new movies no longer have. I think the the what Tarantino does really well is that he showcases the kind of historical relevancy of 1950s, you know, television at that time. Opening with those sequences and all of the kind of quick, you know, showcases of Rick in this fake TV show that he's got going on at the same time as stuff like Gunsmoke and Bonanza and all that. You know, is really great. I think all of that stuff is done really well, and he he he's a good job at emulating that. This is one of those cases where it's not Tarantino lifting things for reference point. He's taking them and and making them his own. You know, in a respectful yeah, manner. He, this is a good showcase of yeah, that. Yeah, you know that building character thing with stuntman Mike. It's like he's building this character. He probably has books dedicated to Rick Dalton in his head. You know what I mean? Where he has like an mm-hmm. entire history that he's able to integrate, and he turn he makes mythology out of reality here with rick and cliff himself is also very complex as a character um i don't know how to feel about him just yet but i definitely see some class issues i see some personality quirks that make it really fascinating for me 
One of the best sequences in the film is when he drops off Rick. He swaps to his old beater car and he drives over to, you know, it's a long, lengthy sequence, you know, of him. And he goes to his trailer behind this loud, you know, drive-in theater. And you see how it kind of shambles that Cliff lives in. And he seems very content to do so. You know, there's a modesty to his character that's really appreciable. Calvin, you have anything to say? Well, I feel like it's obvious that Pitt really understands his character, and I feel that it's very viable that he was living the experience, and um, Leo compliments that very well. Do you want to talk about um, the... Never mind, we won't talk about the Bruce Lee scene, right? Or do you... Should we not talk about the uh, Bruce Lee? You guys, you guys go ahead, yeah. You, you okay there, Calvin? How do you feel about it, All right. Calvin? Do you, do you see anything to it? Uh, I thought it was hilarious, but I didn't think twice about it. Yeah, see, I had like the opposite reaction immediately out the gate there with uh, feeling it. Because as soon as they were not only kind of playing Lee's character as this very kind of over-the-top, kind of hot-headed person, and it seemed kind of like, first of all, not at all what they were showing in the trailer, but also, you know, just kind of not what we think of as Lee, and, and maybe a little kind of disrespectful to him. And, and then from there on, it just kind of kept you know, piling onto that by, you know, making him, like, like, kind of making fun of the way that he, you know, fights and performs, and then also kind of, you know, outdoing him, like, like, trying to undermine his ability as a martial artist by just having Cliff totally kick his ass. Do you think it does undermine it, or that it's just fine? I think, I think it think undermines in, it for sure. Yeah. Because here's the thing. I think it absolutely I feel does. like that's, like... Here's the thing, is do? it... It shows how insecure Lee is. Like, the scene is meant to portray him as the complete butt of the joke. Where it's like, I, I could definitely win in a fight against anybody. I'm the best. And then Cliff's... Cliff... <laughs> it helps Cliff out and it makes Cliff look like a better character. Because it's sort of realism versus the Hollywood fake that sort of runs as a theme for Cliff. But for the actual image of Lee, it, it is pretty uh, unflattering. Right, there's no respect in the portrayal of Lee here, which is very odd because Lee is obviously someone who, you know, influenced Tarantino, as we've seen other stuff like, you know, in Kill Bill especially. But for some reason, he just drops all that here to turn Lee into a giant joke. And it's mostly to set up that uh, Cliff will be good at fighting, so when he does all the crazy shit later, oh, he beat the Bruce Lee before he was even a movie star yes. or anyone with a name, like... Bruce Lee at this point was just like a trainer for Tate and Polanski, you know. Yeah. Well, he was he was fairly big. Like he had a big role mm. on uh, the Green Hornet, which they name drop in here as well, and Tarantino's referenced yeah. also before. So there is that there is that thing about the Green Hornet, whether it's like it's just like a cattle fight, or you know, Cato, there's yeah. something in it, but. Uh, but yeah, the whole oh, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. The whole sequence in general this is just this big flashback sequence that doesn't really add much to the plot, and it's a long. Yeah. You know, distraction. From Would things. you say that it's like a, it's like a meta commentary on the kind of fights that were in the Green Hornet back then? I, no, I, I, I think would, there's I think definitely an element. For, to be I honest. think there's an element of Cliff being the real and uh, Bruce Lee being the fake. Because again, throughout the film, they sort of try to position Cliff as a reality versus right, the, no, the fake theatrics of Hollywood. 
They make an obvious yeah, contrast with, with that the, the hippie character there, where they're like, "Oh, you know, you're, you know, I like that better. You're not like those fake Hollywood actors." You know, they make that that text very clear there. And again, that that's clearly what they're doing with the Lee fight sequence there. But then that the implication there is that Lee is a fake fighter, which is not at all the case. And again, very disrespectful to his legacy. It could be damaging, but uh, that whole bit is a fiction, and I feel like it is commentating on the kind of fighting in the kind of movies they were making. Tarantino can do whatever he wants with any character and any person. Um, And ultimately, this will probably cool over. In 30 years, will people still be talking about this scene? Probably not. No. But uh, initial impressions definitely hit Or in, let's say, a month, nobody will be talking about this scene. Probably not as much, but there's still a certain, you know, like, it's obviously an issue. And again, it struck me in the theater without even the context of knowing that Lee's family was, you know, frustrated by this you know depiction here but you know in theaters i sat there you know kind of uh wincing at it i like uh i like in this film uh when cliff sort of intersects with the hippies when he goes to spawn ranch yeah that's one of my favorite parts of that's the film. great it's a it's a re- i love that yeah i love that disused ranch and the weird culture they have there it's a really great yeah, sequence it's, and it's very dirty very tension filled I saw comparisons like it did feel and I thought sitting there it did feel like we switched over to Texas Chainsaw Massacre at that point it was very well you get like leading up to it you get like all the ass shots right like hanging out of the car and uh, it feels like you're getting like that cut off Gene vibe and it really builds the Texas Chainsaw thing up in your head Mm -hmm. especially with again the, the kind of hippie culture again at the time the kind of characters you got going there and then the whole aesthetic of the place and all that and, and looking very gross and run down especially once he finally enters up into the house after that very protracted you know uh you know walk up there it's all it's a very well done tension sequence in between that and like the beginning of death proof you can see that tarantino has a feeling for how to make a horror film It'd be interesting if he did a whole full horror film um margaret quayley she's also alluring and really good who who does she play she plays the uh, the one that uh, that Cliff picks up. The uh, what's her name? The, uh, pussy. Oh cat? yeah, all, all kid, of the, all of the girls. Yeah. All of the girls that play. Hit I didn't want to call her pussy. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> we all love pussy, don't we? Um, we all, yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, but like all of the girls in the film, I recognized quite a few of them because some of them are a little like Hollywood nepotism, but in like a good way. That like it, it's sort of delightful to see these. Uh, girls in such a scary scenario well, yeah like did you say maya hawk in there maya, maya hawk yeah, or, mia or whatever uh there was uh rumor yeah. willis there was uh, uh harley quinn smith she's in i re- i can't believe these. i recognized harley quinn smith i didn't shot. i was i was surprised. Yo- yoga yoga hosers came in for me there <laughs> yeah <laughs> i guess it was good for one thing yeah. <laughs> but no i, I agree i mean uh, the one thing it's good for is connecting to Tusk, I think. But we're not getting into a Kevin Smith discussion here. That's a whole other podcast. We can do a ranking if we want when Jay and Silent Bob reboot comes out, but not, Bro, not did right you, now. Did you hear him? He's on the record saying we could do a ranking now. <laughs> I am so excited. <laughs> I'm, I'm beyond excited. Uh, do you feel like we spend enough time here on? Yeah, I'll be I'll be probably writing a review on it very shortly. Uh, I didn't know what to say about it, but I think after this conversation, I think I can create a coherent review for the yeah. site to enjoy. 
I just want to say that I love the world building, that it brought me back to a different time that obviously I didn't ever get to experience, but that I've always glamorized. And I feel like Tarantino finds his own truth in these spaces that are really interesting to me, and I just want to live in their world. And uh, through, like, Robbie and especially Cliff, I feel like I could get there at least halfway. Mm -hmm. We could probably spend a whole hour talking about this film alone, but there is a lot still to process, and a lot of it would kind of just be first impressions and potential nitpicks and stuff. And there's a lot of movies to go for now. (laughs) Yes. We're we're already an hour in, but uh, I I love this one. Mm -hmm. I I think I'm the only one of us that did, so I don't know how much I I, I liked it. I I thought it was great. It was great. Not capital G, great, but great. Yeah. And and my opinion was I was I was somewhat let down by it. I was really enjoying it for the first 40 minutes or so, but then the pacing really messed with me, and then the f- fantasy kind of revisionist history stuff bothered me, as it has before with Tarantino films. I don't like that he does that. It feels like it undermines the tragedy going on here, but... Hmm. Anyway, I feel like the I feel like the tragedy didn't deserve to be in the spotlight any more than it already was. So. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's a different take on it entirely. I don't think it, what anyone necessarily expected. But you know, all I can say is I can encourage people to go out and see it for themselves because us talking about it is not going to be enough to you know give you a good impression. Really, go yeah. see this movie. You probably already did because we had spoiler warnings. So I mean, hey, yeah, yeah. I hope you, you did. You should have seen this movie if you're fucking listening to this right now. So please do. All right, moving on here. Number six, we're getting partway through the list. Uh, we have Kill Bill as a collective here, as Tarantino likes to present the film. We argued most about whether or not we should split it, to be honest. I was gonna... Okay, my argument was that they are very different halves. However, as things shook out, they started being right next to each other. And the moment <laughs> right. they're right next to each other, my argument becomes null and void. Right. If we're saying that there's a huge disparity and we rank them exactly the same in the list, it's like, well, where is it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was in the camp here with Bro after having revisited. Originally, I was like, yeah, they're one movie. That's how Tarantino says. But after watching it, I'm like, no, nah, these the one are... That... I know. I know <laughs> David, I did. originally, you said that you have to watch them together. That was your original point. And that is my <laughs> feeling. You know, I, I would not watch yeah. one necessarily without the other. But after this rewatching in general, I don't know if I'd necessarily watch them again in general. These, these were the lowest. These dropped significantly. I am the huge dissenter on the site for Kill Bill, so I'm going to do the respectful thing and not shit on it as much as possible. <laughs> I, I liked I, it. I feel like I've cooled off a little bit, D- too, Dave? but I'm not... Go ahead. <laughs> I feel like I cooled off a little bit, too, but I could still see that it's the most passionate Tarantino ever is, but I don't know if I'm as passionate as I thought I was about where he's at. I, I think... I definitely see where everyone who ranks this high sees the special in this because this is a movie where, again, he creates a mythology for these characters, but this is comic book style, cartoon, in-depth mythology. You feel like this is not the greatest adventure any of these characters have been on. These characters have been on hundreds or dozens, at least, of adventures. and You're just joining them for a couple of Yeah, you're just joining them for like the revenge, you know? Right. And uh, it's exciting for the most part. Um, there's clunkiness to it, which is, I think, why we sort of started to turn off on it. Um, but definitely, Volume 1 has a lot of uh, 
exciting action to it. And David's sort of lesser on that because he definitely sees all the influences in quotes, influences versus ripoffs. Um, go ahead. I'll say I'll say this about it is that uh, I think there's no debate that Kill Bill is is his least original film. I'll call it because there's not a scene that goes by where he's not taking or lifting something, uh, and so many things are just straight up lifted. And some of the favorite things, like all of the musical cues, the ones that he makes like obvious incorporation into the movie and really stand out, they're all lifted from something else. That whistling theme that El Driver has you walking down the hallway, that's taken from a Bernard Herrmann, you know, theme from film called Twisted Nerve. There's the the, uh, the Fly of the Bumblebee, which is the theme music to the Green Hornet when they're doing the flying sequence over to Tokyo. That's taken elsewhere. And of course, you know, there's stuff like the Bruce Lee suit. There's the Yojibo line about going home to your mother. They he, he took a huge influence from Battle Royale as well. I could go on and on about this, but that's why I say it's his least original. I feel like, and, it's, and it doesn't feel like homage to me. It feels like just straight, you know, take here, insert here. I just wonder if you combine enough things together and they're all disparate, does that suddenly make it new? It's a eventually? collage and it's a mix of sampling. I would argue, yeah, I would argue that this film is different enough to completely be its own thing. Uh, I think David sees this. It's like a sausage and David seeing all the meat that went into the sausage. Well, and I, yeah. I have other problems as well. Like, I'm not just going to say that, oh, just because he stole these things it makes it bad. Like, I've got issues with you know characters in the film in the first film especially there are like no characters that have a meaningful relationship to Beatrix throughout you know and so uh, especially when we get like a giant flashback sequence in anime for Oren Ishii for her whole rise to power and then it has no bearing on the actual relationship so the fight they have at the end is is all so physical I want to say like bold as fuck to put anime in this blockbuster movie it's like 15 minutes dude I was like trying to measure it it's, it's long. long it's it's long and it doesn't again if you took it out of the story you probably wouldn't lose anything and that's not really good no i mean i, I don't i don't know it's stylish I, I, it's, I think, it's a new idea to put that I, in there. I think him exploring characters in this is an appeal so i don't mind it necessarily being there for oren is she especially since she's the principal antagonist of the first half but if it just he doesn't do it for other vipers he doesn't do it for anybody else no the first, the first viper they take out, whose name I can't even remember. Copperhead. She just, I don't, I don't know her yeah. real name. It's Copperhead. Wh- whoever it is, yeah. And that's the problem is that I don't care enough about her to remember her name because she's just gone. Like we don't get a backstory for her or anything, and we have no character. All the character stuff is jam packed into the second film, and that's kind of the big problem here. And the interactions. That's why the fights I think are more compelling there. Everyone's going to talk about the crazy idiot fight and how great that is, and it's. Yeah. I'm going to say it's very it's entertaining. The best part. It's it is the best part and it's fun, but I also argue that it's not necessarily done the best. I think it's it's shot in a way that doesn't show off the choreography as well as it could. It's not bad per se. I I just I see it could be done better. I like think I said, it was I'm, probably I edited think I, or something because I, uh, I, 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 I feel like it was edits. it was. It's edited in a way that every cut, you know, comes on each impact. So, it, like, all shots only exist for a second or less. And to me, that communicates that Tarantino's not confident well, enough as a director to to hold on and, and show I don't know. Or, 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 or I, I think that that fight's very confident. Well, no, if it's I, I think it, I think a lot of it has to do with censors slash ratings. Uh, like he turned it into black and white because not because of style, yeah. but because if he had it in color, they would have given him a different rating. 
Yeah, no, I, I know about all that sequence and stuff. It's just, it's it's like every part. Like, and you can see a stark difference in the Crazy 88 fight versus the Go-Go fight, where they do hold on shots, and it's, you know, it takes longer things. They pull things out. There's a more of a flow to that sequence than there is the 88 fight, which is just like an onslaught. But again, I'm, I'm going to take a step back, because I don't want to just shit on the film the whole time. Well, well we can talk oh. about <laughs> the second half slash volume two, because I think that half is fantastic, and sort of I, justifies I the like film. I like it, too. Me. It's. I won't say. It's, I don't want to give an impression that I don't like the second half because I like both halves. I just like them together. And the point is that they are halves. You know, they're not. They're not one movie. Mm-hmm. I do like the second half considerably more again because of all the character stuff going on. And Dave David Carradine is really great, and I think he really makes the second film. Yeah, Dar- Car- Carradine's amazing in the second half, but uh, honestly, I don't think the story matters that much in either of these. I, I think it does it better in uh, two because there's there's different moments because you explore sort of the lifestyle of Bud, um, which is really interesting. And then you see Daryl Hannah actually be villainous. Like you sort of don't see her as like a quick little thing. You see her actively be the most malevolent thing in the film. And that's very enjoyable to me. Well, I think that fight sequence with her is so much more interesting as well because there's there's limitations imposed in that fight. You know, the fact they can't get their swords out in the trailer there. The environment becomes an element of it, and that's a more interesting take for a fight sequence. It's interesting because I feel like Tarantino gets by a lot on vivid um, cinematography here, and his angles are interesting and expressive, and the colors are all primary. And I think it's very, very easy to just see you know, something that's aesthetically, visually appealing, like, on a art school level, right? Like, a first-year art student, you could pick this apart and see, like, the interesting things. But uh, the more you keep watching movies, you, uh, you've you seen where all these are coming from. You've seen the better version already. Mm-hmm. I'll, I will say one of the only things I have a problem with in Volume 2, or uh, maybe not one of the only things, but one of the big things is that there's the the kind of dumb sci-fi truth serum thing at the end, which just... Yeah, it's, I don't like that. It's a bad writing device, and, you know, that's, oh, you that's see, an ta- unfortunate ta- ta- aspect. <laughs> Number one, this is higher than the other films, so we gotta talk about why it's good. But the, <laughs> Yes, yes. But uh, I like all the cartoon stuff. This is very exaggerated. This is very, like... It's a little too sci-fi for the truth serum. I agree. I, I kind of cringe when Bill says it. But David Carradine can also say some crazy stuff yeah. that I buy just because he's charismatic. Um, oh, yeah. David Carradine, he totally sells all that. He even sells the truth serum stuff, even if the, the writing is really poor and expository for that. But everything else in that whole sequence in the end, like he really makes that. David Carradine, like I said, is the star of this film to me, and he does so well. And this, this film is his... More or less legacy for a reason, at least cinematic legacy. Uh, I mean, I think it's absurd to put Uma Thurman in a film where she has to become like Bruce Lee. And I think that's absolutely insane that she was able to train and get to that point. Um, and that Tarantino saw someone who was doing nothing at all like this and did this with her. I think that's what makes it so especially new well, that- and stand out in her career, too. And what makes Tarantino so interesting is he'll find an actor that's doing something totally different and they'll say, Uma Thurman, oh, you're a martial arts star now. Well, that's and that's Im- what she'll be known for. The martial arts stuff is some of the most interesting stuff of part two as well. All of the stuff with um, the, the the sensei there. God, I can't remember. Pai Mei. I, I, of Thank course you. I remember Thank Pai Mei. I also remember, I also <laughs> remember uh, Michael Parks' uh, crap. I don't remember it. What's his name? Da. Oh, um... Where's Bill? Where's Bill? <laughs> he plays a Mexican character, and you don't Esteban notice it. Esteban is Esteban. Yes, yes, that's what it is. And it's crazy. So, uh, 
we should take a moment to acknowledge that Michael Parks is a fantastic actor that pops up, you know, in many Tarantino films, and we miss mm. him dearly. And I think we've mentioned him a little bit in our previous discussions on Tusk and Red State, you know, right? Oh, so he did listen to the Tusk and Red State part. <laughs> I'm very proud of you, David. <laughs> Finally caught. Yes, I listened in. I, I bore through it. I grit my teeth, but I did listen. Okay, do you do you want to move on and kill or move on to the next one, or do you feel like yeah, yeah? So we talked enough about kill. I feel like we did good, and it, again, it's important to acknowledge that those films are very pulpy and fun, and very much within Tarantino's. I I think style they're better here. than everything that just come before. It's more fun. I think uh, we should say that we're very very negative on it, but a lot of people have it really high in their list. We'll say that I was very negative on it. I'll take the heat. You for were all very of that negative because I was very negative on it. Yeah, and I'm a I'm gonna take the other side. Just say David's wrong. I love saying David's wrong. It's my favorite thing to you do. You can say, you can say it. You can say it if you want. I can take it. All right, top five here. Here we go. Uh, number five, Oof. we have hateful eight here. This That's is brilliant. oh now now everyone's giving me the pedestal because this was my number one. Uh, yes. This is this is my favorite Tarantino film. Um, I think it's really special because it's it's a writing it's like a movie for writers and actors. This this should almost be a play, but Tarantino also approaches the presentation and direction as if it's special and makes it eventful, and that sort of makes the writing and acting more theatrical. It, it makes it feel like it belongs in a movie. Yeah. And what does he do to differentiate that? Differentiate it from a play, you mean? Yeah. Um, definitely the 70 millimeter and the wide shots uh, where you yeah. absorb the nature and you absorb sort of the dread and stuff. It's not like you can necessarily have, you know, that sort of imagery in a play. You know, if, if there was mm. ever a play on this, it would almost entirely be in Minnie's haberdashery and you would definitely well, not feel as sort of expansive and have the characters feel so minuscule in it. Even then, you wouldn't be able to get all the bloodshed you get in the final bits with, you know, if you did it as an actual play. But I agree that the 70mm is that great offset to the more intimate styling of the film, especially in the opening sequence. Oh, it's so gorgeously shot in the beginning. It's absolutely beautiful. I, I was surprised by how much more I liked the film on this last rewatch than I had remembered. But it is. It's really wonderfully done. And the writing is probably... I think this is Tarantino's best writing. I, I'm going to say that. I think the reason why people don't like this is it definitely goes into some of the darker pits of his imagination and emotions, probably. This is a very mean movie. It's a very bad movie where you're not supposed to... You, you can like characters, but they do very unlikable things, every single one of them. Um, even, like, Minnie doesn't like Mexicans. Like, the nicest woman in the film is racist. So it's like... Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I think it's... I wish I, I wish I came out of it with a better perspective, because uh, by the time I finished, I basically agreed with Graham that it was just the thing and the great silence combined and not much else. See, I, I oh, saw I... a lot of... Uh, I saw a lot of social commentary, and I saw a lot of, like... Uh, 
little Tarant like I see actual Tarantino reflection in this. Um, I think uh, I haven't seen The Great Silence, but I think the thing is sort of more of a step back into like what lies are and identities and stuff versus this. I think this was very contemporary. I think this film felt very political at the time. And uh, despite what people may believe, I think this is a happy ending. This was a very happy ending. I'll comment on this as far as influences go as well, because, yeah, it's easy to pin this as a Great Silence influence, but it's really just because it's a western in the snow, there's not much going on parallel-wise between the characters and plot lines, or mm. anything going on in the Great Silence. I, if anything, this is a I lot more... Pulls, uh, this is a lot more like Key I think Largo. it pulls a lot of Corbucciisms, though. Sort of, but yeah. I think writing-wise, it more... goes for, like, an Agatha Christie thing. That's totally what it I is. This is a murder really... mystery in a cabin. I could really tell that Tarantino likes Corbucci from this movie, though, and I, I mean, even more so, like uh, in Hollywood, when he constantly mentions Corbucci. But here, definitely, right? He's been on a kick, like his last what three, four movies, where it's very Corbucci influenced. Well, we should. So s- I could see Great Silence all over it. We should say as well that um, you know, this is uh the first, or the the one time he actually got Morricone to score a film for him, and Morricone got an Oscar because of it. It's good. It's all good, man. Yeah. The things to complain about this movie are it's long, which, guess what? So are the other films on this list. And uh, I it, thought it was actually it, longer than the other films, but it turns out it's approximately the same length. It feels long. It's because they don't it, do it, anything it because it's slower. for a lot of it. <laughs> it's slower paced, but if you can get into that pacing, it's really great. And the tension is really great once things start going, you know, uh, you know, kind of picking up and you wonder things. Like, I only... The film only loses me once the immersion is broken by Tarantino's, um, you know, voiceover coming in and starting to give extra information and, un- and unravel things. Oh, you see, I I, th- I find this to be Tarantino's best performance in a cameo. Uh, I like it because it feels very like, it feels like a play part where it's like, little do they know, someone has poisoned the coffee pot. <laughs> That's why I call this, Minnie has a secret. Or, uh, what's her face? Uh, uh, Daisy has a secret. But, uh, yeah. Or right, was it... Yeah, whatever that is. I see. I find it immersion breaking because I've the big thing with Hateful Eight for me is that I really buy into the atmosphere of it, and so once that is that illusion is kind of shattered, then I, it kind of just devolves for me. And then I'm also not a big fan of Channing Tatum's performance in the film. He's he feels very out of place to me. I I think I think this may be Tarantino's worst casting choice was Tatum. I, I can I can agree with that. <laughs> Um, but I, I like the ending. I think after the flashback part where he's in there, I think the ending sort of wraps things all up. Originally, if you guys ever read the script, it ended very differently. But, uh, this ending to me felt very like, it felt much more cohesive to the film. I really like the ending and it feels proper for it. And, And again, this is another case where this is a flashback that I definitely did not need or want. Like, I felt like it would have been better without a flashback sequence in there. And again, another bad Zoe Bell cameo. But, but again, the the ending is really great, and it feels like a proper send-off, you know, to the characters going on here. And it feels very gratifying. Like you said, it's a, it's a kind of happy ending, even though everyone dies. Since, uh, since we talked bad about every other movie, then I can say this movie is... Uh, Dialogue-wise, sometimes clunky, sometimes a little too indulgent, sometimes a little too uh, too boring. I like it, but uh, not. I definitely understand why this is lower on a lot of other people's lists. Yeah, I mean, as far as Netflix series go, it's alright. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, did, I might. Ri- I didn't watch it as the Netflix this time. 
I, I don't see any value in separating it like that. You didn't watch it that way, or you did? No, I did not, because so. I don't see any value in it. I just whipped out my Blu-ray and just, you know, put it in the player. Yeah. I don't see why you would. I, I tried it, and it didn't do anything else. Well, so, uh, I'm, I might know. write a thing on this, so we can move on if you guys feel uh, comfortable in that. Yeah, I think we've yeah, we said really want point. your piece on this. So <laughs> it'll it'll happen. I know, guys. bro. Has it'll a lot happen. more. I gotta do once upon a time first. All right, we'll, yeah, we'll get to that. It. In the meantime, let's keep going up our list here. Number four is Inglorious Bastards, which a lot of people are really high on. Ten hot eyes forward. My name is Lieutenant Aldo Ray. And I need me eight soldiers. We're gonna be dropped into France, dressed as civilians. We're gonna be doing one thing, one thing only. Killing Nazis. Yes, sir! But I'm pretty indifferent to I This time watching it, I saw what people liked. Yeah, yeah, I, I think... Before, I was really skeptical on the power of cinema thing, and I, I don't like the two halves being very different from each other. But on further reflection, even though they're very different, they sort of complement each other by by exploring the same themes but differently, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll say this as well, is that um, when I've watched this film as well, because this was essentially the first time I watched it, I'll say essentially here, but... um. And from the opening minutes, you get the sense that it is a very different kind of Tarantino film. It's taken a lot more seriously than his other stuff. Like, any pulpy material here is really condensed into just the bastard's crew part. Everything else is taken, like, dead seriously and played 100% straight. Until they play like David really Bowie. Effective. I'm just kidding. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> I did I did want to mention that on the podcast. You know, I don't have to mention it again because I said it last week when it was really bizarre that that struck me so odd. <laughs> No, I, I and uh, the there's a whole Western framework when it's opening with the Maricone and the it's it's a whole different theme and it really shows where he's going with the I think this is like the opening of second half career of Tarantino and it's much more mature and it's going to do something different and it's getting away from what he did in Kill Bill which is a he, he needs to do it yeah it was less fun more him taking himself seriously and that's what we really wanted yeah. after Kill Bill. And especially after Death Proof, mm. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like he had already explored like the full extent of what that had to offer him, and to go in this capacity was more interesting at the time. But this would make a much better Netflix split series than um, Hateful Eight would, because this is really a story of different parts, and they're all like 20 minutes long, and it drags. I don't know if I'd say it's better to split it up like that, because it's still a very cohesive story. The problem is, is the tonal dissonance between the ongoing stories there. Everything is taken very seriously, except for Brad Pitt and the Bastards, who are kind of cartoonish in their portrayal there and what they do. Um, they, they're they really boring, and of course they've gotten like a second life with all the Antifa stuff, right? But that's not a happy... See, uh, I, I like the Bastards, and I especially like the Bastards, because we haven't talked about it yet, but the, really the best thing about this movie is Christoph Waltz's performance as Landa. Um, yeah. He yeah. is fantastic in this film, and he is he is the reason to watch this, in my opinion, um, especially from a writing or performance standpoint. He's probably their best antagonist of the, of the entire filmography. Um, and for the Bastards, 
the bastards are really cartoony and stupid. They're sort of meant to be like a sort of comparison for the Nazis and a sort of a check for Landa at the very end. Because like Landa's very slimy and pretty dastardly and then the sort of cartoon brick wall that is the bastards stops him in his tracks pretty well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i really think that it's interesting that waltz brings something else to it that uh there's a mixture of language that's not evident in any other tarantino so uh it's just interesting that a blockbuster like this would have you know maybe like 25 percent just uh foreign language and then not all english it was it was probably it more really than 25 percent. Well. it was probably like 50 and that's a huge thing i respect with the film is that you know tarantino yeah. was not afraid to allow characters to speak in a natural language there was a couple times where he's like well let me switch to english here but he made it made sense within the context and the characters made an active choice too it wasn't just that people are speaking english and you're just gonna have to accept that that's probably not what they yeah would do. I, I was watching it I, when waltz in the very first scene says can i switch to english i rolled my eyes and then i realized it's so that the people down below couldn't understand him i was like that's a really smart way to do it mm-hmm. and that's a chilling moment too when he when he mentions it and he's like okay let's bring the girls in as opposed to like a good contrast of that is in when oren ishi speaks english in kill bill where that just feels like a you know like you, you wanted to say this instead in English here. It didn't have a real purpose behind it. All right, we get it. You don't mm-hmm. like Kill Bill, David. You're wrong. Okay, okay. I'm sorry. Let's move on. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that Inglorious Bastards, again, like the beginning scene as well, has some of Tarantino's best scenes. Like people really gravitate to it because he has some really great directed scenes here. That opening sequence is one of them, but also the other big one is the the card game sequence. You know, with the the three drinks with Michael Fassbender's character. Yeah, I was there. gonna say this is the first time I ever was exposed to Fassbender. And this was the film where I saw Fassbender being like, oh, he's really good. It's a shame that he got, like, I only know him now for Prometheus stuff and Magneto, but, like, he's really good. Mm. Mm -hmm. And he does a really great job. Like, that scene is full of so much tension because, you know, it's that that uh, Hitchcock idea of having information that the other character necessarily doesn't and wondering if that's going to get unveiled at any point during here. And, you know, as you teeter kind of closer to the reveal or not. I want to say what an absolute waste of Brad Pitt, though. You know what they didn't waste? You see later what he could do with them. They didn't waste mm. Mike Myers. The <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'll, I'll say this, is that th- that's Mike Myers actually acting. You know, It's crazy. He, it only feels weird because you recognize that it's Mike Myers. If, if he didn't have this reputation as you know, a comedic you know, actor otherwise, you wouldn't feel weird with him being there because he sells that role, like, strangely well <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed he casted that that's the that's the craziest weirdest but worked casting for tarantino i i totally agree with that it totally works and it probably shouldn't <laughs> okay do you guys want to uh, move on or did we not talk yeah about i think i think we've praised enough about it. we didn't talk much about the actual cinema aspect of inglorious bastards but i think people appreciate that enough uh, the only thing i can say i don't like about that is that there's that weird stop where tarantino feels the need to inform everyone how nitrate film works and that's not necessary hey guys yes yeah. what's up nazis are bad i know yeah, right oh my you. gosh i actually Almost wait forgot. time out we should talk about it. we should talk about the ending real quick it's very fun okay it's super fun sure. it is 
So it's so fun. I, I will say, going back to Hollywood, because I just have the need to shit on everything here, is that I'm not a huge fan oh God. of revision, revising history, but I get the the uh, the desire to and the the catharsis that comes with murdering the shit I, out of. I people. think I would. I think I would understand your point more if Hollywood came out and this never came out. But I definitely understand the feeling of shooting Hitler in the face and then exploding him. That's great. It's a good yeah, feeling. That's- like that's I, the thing we all understand, and that it just goes on and on makes it really fantastic. I I allow that one, and it does feel like a an earned catharsis to go out of our way to alter history in this way. Like I'm not a huge fan of it, but I'm like I accept it. I I get what's going on. Okay, now I'm ready to go. <laughs> move on. Okay, cool. So number three is one I'm I'm happy to talk at great length. You know, uh, happily about is Django and Jane. Ah, that, that theme song. Oh, so of all the things Tarantino has stolen his career, I'm totally okay with him stealing the theme of Django because it's just so it's fucking good. It's so fucking good. It's a great, great Western theme. And it, it needs it, too. It benefits this so much that you can't blame it. Yeah, and uh, I think in general, even with the contemporary music, this is probably the best scenario where he combines contemporary music with the old stuff. Like, David Bowie and Glorious Bastards, uh, I don't know about that. But here, <laughs> yeah, here like they use, uh, you know, I Got a Name by Jim Croce, and I, I loved it. It was great. And right. Stuff well, that's like that. that. It's because, and he uses such a variety of music, like that uh, Jim Croce song, it's, it's very reminiscent of the kind of... Um, uh, Leonard Cohen music and scored in uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller and, and that works really well but then he also uses more modern music like there's a John Legend song he uses later on and it works it perfectly works for the characters there and that's the thing is that the songs reflect the characters at any given moment and that's why it works so well here in Django as opposed to in mm. something like Inglorious Bastards and the characters are so vivid here and well drawn into their environments and I love I just love the contrast of the characters. Oh, dude, I I, I love the characters too. I love Calvin Candy. I love Schultz. Mm-hmm. I love I love Steven. I think this is Sam Jackson's best performance in a Tarantino film because <laughs> you know uh, while we're I, while we're so close to the Hitler thing, I just want to talk about Calvin, my shared namesake. <laughs> he's the the he's the worst, most evil, vile character Tarantino's ever made, and I love uh, him. Yeah, he's I, fantastic. I, I, I think he feels di- Calvin feels disgusting. He just looks. I agree. He looks yeah. like the devil. You know, yeah, bro. And he's so so temperamental that you, he he can't be trusted at all. And if if he if they made him worse than Hitler, I just don't know what to say. He's the best villain Tarantino ever See, had. That's the thing is that and one of my favorites in a western. Bro said that you know he thought that. Landa was the best, you know, antagonist that Tarantino wrote, but I definitely agree here is that I, you know, the the, the charismatic, you know, vilest nature of Calvin here, it makes him my, my favorite and I think the worst, you know, contender here. And Leo is just so good at doing the character. It's a lot like uh, the techniques this Calvin used to get this on the list. <laughs> good planning, Cal. <laughs> no, but uh, I will say in... An argument against that, or, or maybe for it, because this movie works better than Inglorious, is uh, is uh, Calvin's 
counterpart there is Steven, and it's like a sort of perfect compliment because Calvin's not that smart, and Steven is mm-hmm. smart, and sort of the way Tarantino explores race sometimes in this is like Steven is an Uncle Tom who is completely okay with selling his race out so he can feel safer in his home. And, and it's terrifying. Right. Mm-hmm. It is monstrous in its own level. He is like, no, throw the book at Django. Make him make him a slave and wor- make him work till his death. And, like, he has no remorse at all. Well, and they make Mm-mm. a point of acknowledging that with, like, because like, Django's hesitance to be that, you know, um, you know, uh, slaver character there and he you know he talks about how that's the the worst thing you know that you can be you know as a as a going from a slave so essentially you know they're already setting up that idea that steven's character is the worst kind of person to sell out there you know absolutely man i just love all the the like diverse themes and characters in this movie and that's it's probably my favorite black cowboy movie I think it's a. I mean, there's not many options, but no, I, I there aren't any options I like more than this. Um, and I, I really grew up on the Django movies, right? Like, well, that's why uh, this... my dad would watch the old ones, and I'd watch like my Italian stuff. Well, that's why I said this is also kind of it's fair for him to kind of steal from here because the the series of Django films is built on the idea of stealing it. Like, they're, they're not <laughs> yeah. official sequels. All those Django kills movies or whatever they are, you know, they're all just like they took the name and ran with it. So it's totally fair for well, him to pick up the reins here. <laughs> Once the Italians came in, they were like the bandits of the West, right? Like they were the they were the badasses of the West that were coming and just stealing the things and uh, turning it over for profit. So it it's interesting to take from that and just to steal so liberally. And then when it opens with something like a what does it say with the cooperation of Frank Nero, I think I nearly cheered the first time. Oh I was yeah, in there. that great scene where they have with Nero there. It's a nice nod, and it's and it's not. It is. It's not one of those distracting referential moments. It's just a very quick. The D is silent. I know. Okay, it's a little bit. <laughs> A little, but it's over fast. Again, I, I allow it. One thing I, I do want to say as well, like, you know, it's very easy to categorize Django as very specifically just a kind of spaghetti western homage film, but the front half of the film is all, like, classic straight-up western stuff, very mm-hmm. similar to all of that, especially with the whole trek. Like, one thing I've said as well, like, the trek through the mountains and everything through the winter everything, it reminds me so much of the West, uh, the Searchers in particular and a mm-hmm. lot of that going on there. And it's not shot like a spaghetti western until about the second half of the film that's when we get a lot more of that so it's both then the spaghetti goes flying yeah and it's it's really all over the place you know uh, the spaghetti is all over the place and it's great it's a really great homage this is again where i think tarantino is not stealing anything necessarily in this case he is really paying tribute and he's been wanting to you can tell for like the previous three films there's so many western homages he keeps taking western things and sticking them in there like he just finally had to make a damn western at this point (laughs) I love the. I feel like there's like a turning point. I I love the, the Ku Klux Klan moments with like all the, with like the thirty guys coming down on horseback. Uh, you don't get to see that that often because animal rights. But uh, it's it's nice to see another western with like a scene with a lot of horses in it. Yeah, it's a big you know terrifying. Moment. I I wish they had like the full scene they obviously had planned there. It definitely feels yeah. like it's missing something. And you know you got the extended, you know you know, nobody brought an extra bag kind of scene there going on, which is funny, but it's, it's it feels like it's chopped up. It's weird that they cast Jonah Hill for a complete it comedy is. role, but then they cast Channing Tatum for a dastardly role, and... It is, 
Like, it's sad because it's like Jonah Hill is a much more capable actor. As we've seen. I should say that it, I don't think I've even said it yet, but this is my favorite Tarantino. Yeah. I adore this movie. Well, and it's perfectly in character for you, you know, being big spaghetti western person and all that. It makes perfect sense that you love this one so much, and you should. Um, yeah, if it were second or third, you'd probably ask why. This, right? this one's like my second favorite, I think, because I was very impressed with it on a rewatch as well, again, because I felt like it did. And uh, we talked a lot about, you know, how great Leo is in film as well, but we didn't talk about how great Jamie Foxx is as well. Oh, he's so great, and he's he's so crucial to the like the emotion he shows in his face, the the pain of all the history behind what went on in the West and what it meant to a black person in this situation. Yeah, well, he, he takes especially it. he he pays off every line. Well, it's reading. a nice heartwarming romance too. Yeah, with Kerry yeah. Washington, I, I I do gotta wonder because. I don't know if you guys remember as well, but Tarantino originally wrote the role of Django with Will Smith in mind. Do you guys think he could have done that at all? No. Mm. No. <laughs> not at all. It would have been he, awesome. Here's, here's the thing. I actually have a story for that to follow that up. So, Jamie Foxx, when he got on set, like, the first day, um, he he acted... I got this from a Howard Stern interview. I gotta cite my sources. Um, Jamie Foxx acted really cool and confident and charismatic. And it was like one of the early scenes where Django's sort of um, like in a, like a slave that got out, and Quentin took him aside and said, "You can't do that right now. You have to think about where your character's at." And I oh, don't, th- a, I don't think Will Smith has that kind of do, range. N- that's one thing no. they do a really great job of in the characterization of Django here is that he's obviously uneducated in the beginning but he's not stupid like they do a really good job of portraying him as someone who has to become himself by the end you know that parallel with uh you know the the german legend they have kind of going on at the same time you know it's it's a very good you know story arc Django has a really great character arc throughout the film and you see it slowly grow as he becomes more confident and more capable until the very end uh, I, I do want to highlight one other sequence in the film, at least, that I think is rather important, because I think it's the most horrifying thing that Tarantino's ever filmed. It's very, very difficult for me to watch the Mandingo <laughs> you already fight know what scene. It is. Oh, oh, no, no, I thought you were talking about the Tarantino cameo. Never mind. Yeah, you're right, the Mandingo oh, fight oh, scene. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Mandingo fight scene is bad. I did not mean to laugh at that. No, no, but... It's, it's harsh. Yeah, so that one is, is, is a legitimately horrifying and, you know gruesome scene for me to watch i i have to look away from it each time that scene comes on but it's very powerful i think because of that and and executed very well i just wanted to, to mention it at least briefly there because it is it's, it's terrible well, well i have to look away during the tarantino cameo too so it's it, you i know. don't i don't blame you it's it's kind it's of a bad cameo it's a neck and neck there it's an it's an awful awful accent from Tarantino and like it just feels like you got to keep forcing this New Zealand thing because you want to keep shoving Zoe Bell into everything you're doing here and it doesn't feel natural at all (laughs) it doesn't work but it's short and um, really the only problem I have with it I noticed that uh, I noticed this time the editing was choppier but that's it's not so bad yeah Uh, but I think Django in general is just a really great homage film and really lives up to the style and everything going on. And it tells a very different story. This is not a a Western story you'll get in any other film. 
it's very special because of that. I think I expended all my energy getting this to third place, so I feel like I let down other films like Kill Bill, but you know, this needed to go high. I so. I agree with that, and I can and, and we can just bl- and I can just blame Calvin for this. I'll be like, I'm sorry, guys. Calvin's just really into Django. <laughs> it's true All, and we could say the same about this next entry here for me because I pushed hard for, for this second entry here number two we have Jackie Brown you don't know what you do till you put on a pressure cross 110th street of a hell of a tester across 110th I agreed with you though. Like I, I love Jackie Brown. I used to watch this uh, a couple years ago with my friends. Like one of my film friends who's in LA right now, he is like Jackie Brown's my favorite. And I think it's it's because it's very graceful for a Tarantino film. The the downsides to it are just there aren't really downsides. It's just whether or not you can handle what it is. The downsides are that you don't get as much of that signature Tarantino style. He's incredibly reserved in Jackie Brown, and I think that's to the film's benefit more than anything. I will say that uh, I think a lot of the opinion, you know, people who aren't as big on Jackie Brown probably have not given it as much of a chance yet because it's a very dense film. Usually, I found kind of across the board, people don't like it on the first viewing because they don't get it all, including myself. I did not like Jackie Brown the first time I saw it, but once I was able to revisit that's a, it. That's the one thing I want to note is that I've seen it once, so I'll mostly stay out of the conversation, but uh, the idea is that I saw most of the scenes in different places at different times, so I'm well aware of Jackie Brown, but uh, it was But it also sounds viewing, like if you so saw I, it at different places in different times, that would sort of lose a coherency to like i would get lost because at a certain point in time i I have to like draw a map to see what they're doing so yeah especially it's very confusing (laughs) it is confusing but it all makes sense once you uh kind of have seen it enough times and and, you think about it worry about all the other things and and sometimes you'll be like "Why, why are they taking this big risk but it's because the character of jackie brown is the smartest character in the film and she uh what's samuel jackson's character's name so i don't get it wrong Ordell, Ordell Roby. Ordell. It, you know, Ordell says early on in the film that he uh, he doesn't have to trust people. He just has to trust that they'll be themselves. And he doesn't right. actually stick to that. But Jackie does have a unique understanding of people and is able to manipulate and go through people to escape the life she's in currently. It's- I really love that Tarantino really loves Jackie, and it's very evident that he loves her and that he loves Jackson's character, and that for it being an adaptation, he's found enough to make them his own, and he changed the characters enough that it feels significant. I think it's very interesting how much he changed, because, I mean, obviously the film is a big, you know... Uh, homage and a send-up of uh, black exploitation cinema, you know, the the kind of mm-hmm. 70s and on. But the thing is that the Elmore Leonard novel this is adapted from, Rum Punch, Jackie is... I don't even think she's called Jackie. If she is, she's a white... No. She's a white girl. And it takes place in Florida, but nobody likes that. Whoa, whoa, so. whoa, whoa, yeah, like whoa. it's... They moved it to California. I'm just kidding. 
Yeah, no, it's it's totally different. So the fact that there is such a, a black identity to the film is such an interesting thing that Tarantino, you know, is able to infuse into it, especially the characters there. And uh, what I also view the film as is, is very much this kind of film about uh, like coming to grips with your with your age, because that's a huge thing for Jackie's character, especially in combination with uh, Max there. Yeah, everybody in this film's fucking old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even the young people in this, like uh, Ordell's uh, white surfer girl girlfriend, I don't remember her name, but she she's yeah. sort of like growing out of her cute face. Like they they address it's, that in the film, and like right, it, she she ain't half as you know cute as she used to be. Or so he says some yeah. line like that later. Yeah, like but, uh, yeah, every character in this film is sort of on the wind down, and how they're dealing with it is what's interesting. Mm-hmm. I think especially I, I got to talk about you know my favorite character in the film because I love Max here. Robert Forster as Max Cherry is just such an amazing character thing, and he's got this very great kind of uh, stone-faced acting performance going on here, where his face is so much, even though it's not really expressing a whole lot overtly. It's got, you know? it's got like that, you can read so much. It's got that dad stoicism to it. It's got it's got that like. <laughs> conservative khaki polo dad stoicism that's just juicy there's a, there's that great moment juicy dads <laughs> there's that, that great moment where you know he first comes to pick up jackie out of the jail and the music's you know kind of building up with this huge kind of love theme where you just see this this uh this stare from him and it's not like this overt you know like obviously falling in love thing but you get that emotion so much more powerfully reading that through his his expression there and i think he's just absolutely phenomenal this is my favorite tarantino performance you know is is uh, you know rob forrester here this is also a delicate use of soundtrack the thing i liked about this soundtrack number one is just song selections fantastic but also they use it as sort of theme songs right so they give uh you know they give uh ordell strawberry letter 23 or whatever and they give jackie uh What's the intro song? Oh my gosh, I'm forgetting it. Oh, I, I can look it up real quick, but you know it's uh, a well they they make an important street. use of music, uh throughout you know the like they talk about the Delphonics is an important yes you know thing yeah the didn't I moment. do it right this time by the Delphonics is uh Max's song because that's sort of his association with Jackie he's introduced to it and he learns that he likes it then he learns that he loves it and he doesn't you know you know what I mean so like he uses. Yeah. The songs not to enhance a scene, although he definitely does that. But the main purpose is to establish and create character through those moments. I got I got Jackie's song for you. It's called uh, "Across 110th Street" yes. by Bobby Womack, and and that is a brilliant thing because they use it during the opening and they use it during the end, and it sort of shows how she's come full circle and grown out of the struggle that she's in, and it's really nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a it's a really great. Again, I think I said I didn't even think about that as much before, but the music throughout is is very well used. Tarantino's always been great with his soundtracks, but particularly here in Jackie Brown is a really great example uh, of it here. Uh, and he's got a really great uh, sense of cinematography throughout as well. You know, I love the combination of music and you know cinematography, especially when the during Beaumont's killing, where he, you know with uh, Ortel's character there. Chris Tucker's best performance. Next to the Fifth Element and Friday. I was gonna say, I was like, let's not let's not take out that character. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I don't know. Is there much else, uh, Calvin? Do you have any final thoughts you want to weigh in? You haven't said too much about Jackie Brown, but I'm I'm curious to know still. I'm very curious to give it another viewing. I think it was interesting as a first viewing to kind of combine those pieces that seem so incoherent in my head. 
And because it's the only Tarantino I haven't spent any significant time with. It, mm-hmm. It's a um, movie... Jackie Brown's a really good Tarantino character, despite coming from somewhere else, but uh, I see why everyone else likes it. It's not my favorite. It will yeah, be I one think day. It's a, one day it will be. That's the point we're trying I think, to say. Maybe. I think so. I think it's Tarantino's most mature film. I think that's what I'm going to call it. If that's what you're looking for from Tarantino. Yeah, and it may not so. be. It may not be. It's a very different kind of Tarantino film. It's it's missing a lot of that style. But I, I just think someone else could do this better than he could. I think he does his thing as well as he could. But uh, that's just I my mean, feeling I mean, what do you mean it. by better? Because this movie, like... This movie showcases to me that he is competent and capable without this style. You know, sometimes I worry, like, if Tarantino didn't do what he did, then is he good? And then this movie tells me, yeah, he's good. He's great. Yeah. He's still good. Yeah, that's, that's yeah he's still able to do something. I agree with you, bro, here. Is that, I think it's a great movie. Yeah, is that uh, the, the when, when you strip away the things that Tarantino leans on for his style, it shows that he's still a great filmmaker. I think that's what Jackie Brown is really a testament to. Yeah, and I think that enhances everything else, too. You're able to say, oh, this guy was actually good. It wasn't just a chance that he uh, saw a movie and he was able to replicate it. Because movies are really fucking hard to make. Yeah. And people don't understand, like, how much goes into that, that you have to be that good to be able to replicate something and make it go over well. Well, and it shows a lot of growth as well, being his third film. So going from Reservoir Dogs to Pulp Fiction to this, it's a really interesting track record there. And actually, I think that makes for a good point to talk about our obvious number one pick here, right? We mm-hmm. want it to be controversial, put other things at number one for a long time, and then I was like, guys, you can't not put it. It's it's number one. Mm-hmm. It's the only way that we could finish the list, really. I mean, it was the only way for anything else to come after it. It's, it's the general consensus. It's just what everyone thinks. Everyone says and knows that Pulp Fiction is his number one film. argued a lot i really really wanted janky brown to be number one because i love it so much and i do think it is his best film but like i, I actually came down on but jackie isn't emblematic <laughs> of tarantino it's not signature exactly. it's not if, you know if no. we're looking at like what he does as a director this is emphatically what he's about like, like yeah like if you had to sum up tarantino in one film you just give someone pulp fiction i totally agree with that and i'm not disagreeing that it doesn't necessarily deserve this one spot i just you know i gotta push for my own affection just like you guys gotta push for yours how, as well. how did you feel about your rewatch on this i i came down a little and i have to f- I, i'm sure some of that is just because of how culturally ubiquitous it is and how i've tired of it a bit over time but i can't deny so much of it that is really great and holds up and like taken as individuals i think each sequence works really you know really fantastically and they all have absolutely great things to them a couple of things like interrupt like i i, I think one of the few things i'll okay play about is the the scene in butch's <laughs> sequence where calvin's he, uh, dying yeah. I'm dying. 
but yeah, the 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 Butch stuff. Some of the stuff in Butch goes with his his French girlfriend or whoever that goes on way. I believe too her name's Fabienne. Yeah, I see. I don't even care. I don't remember her name because Damn. she's not an important. <laughs> but I love all of the rest of Butch's stuff. You know, way more. Like like that's still my favorite section of the film. I think this film has a lot of vignettes and stuff. I think what I like about this film is like everything we said about Reservoir Dogs that might not work to our eyes because we're being a little too critical on it. I've seen Pulp Fiction almost as many times as Reservoir Dogs, and it works for me because I think I think the dialogue yeah. is more nuanced. It helps establish character more, and it's less obnoxious yet still, you know, still trademark. Yeah, no, I. Man, I- I've seen it maybe a hundred times, right? But I, I always find something I really love about it, and it's always a different thing. With the dialogue especially, I'll go back and say, like, comparing just to, like I said the earlier, with the, the Like a Virgin conversation of Reservoir Dogs, the opening conversation of Pulp Fiction is actually character building and plot, you know, set up there with the idea of Mia's mm-hmm. character and establishing that in the beginning. That's all really great character stuff. And it works really well. And the interactions between, you know, John Travolta and Sam Jackson, they have really great chemistry together and make good partners. I think so. And I think the parts are individually just, I mean, they're all little interesting stories. And I love a little short story anthology that really comes together in an interesting, well-weaved way. And I haven't grown really apart from Pulp Fiction at all. I, that's the only one that I really loved, like in my you know teen years, that I I came back to and felt exactly the same about. Like I said, I don't, I don't know if I grew apart from it so much as tired because it is so common and I have seen it so many times. And you know, this has happened. But it doesn't seem like the movie's fault, though. Not necessarily. You know, you know like I said, there are some things I picked up in this time where I'm like, there are some sequences that drag on too long. You know, Tarantino does have a tendency to to draw out scenes for sometimes too long of lengths like i mentioned but for the most part like i said everything is really great here he has another great sense of music and staging uh i like a lot of some of the homages he does he's got he's got a really great psycho homage at one point i don't know if you guys catch that which one was it there the scene where butch has uh gotten away from you know the house and he's driving and then he you know when marcellus wallace sees him in the road there that's a straight uh, framing taking exactly from psycho when janet lee's character runs into her boss while she's running away with the money oh, and she snap. sees him i did on not the catch sidewalk. that mainly because no, i forget and, and that first really half of psycho at... like all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> well and, and, and he's really good at like drawing a scene out and bringing it to like the Bringing it to like a larger feeling, and everything looks really good in Pulp Fiction. I think I think part of that as well is that's probably why Butch's sequence is my favorite because I love the the uh, I love Ving Rhames in it as well. That that scene that that sequence where he's just talking to Bruce and it's just that single shot held on Bruce with, like expressing nothing for like several minutes before it cuts and you just get the back of Marcel's Wallace's head there. I think it's really great and again it's another form of restraint and just allowing the scene to play out. It's a really good example of that. I think I think also this is probably the most tasteful use of structure. I think this film builds those vignettes into a deliberate pacing that makes it really work for the film. And like having right, and so much of like modern movies so depend on that non 
you know, linear style of Pulp but, Fiction. But well, there's a, the, few do it as good as Pulp Fiction, is I guess what I'm trying to say. Few do. Yeah, I agree, and there's a reason behind it. He's not just doing it for a stylistic purpose. The order in which they, you know, are there, they're there for a reason, and so we get time with certain characters. Like, if you just, if you uh, ended it with, like, Butch's stuff, like, it wouldn't feel like a proper ending. You know, we want to end with the characters we start with. It feels like it comes full circle with that, and we get... We get that kind of full sense. Uh, the the know, resolution of the themes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, Jules' character is my personal favorite of the film. I love the journey that Sam Jackson's character goes through. And it sort of helps cement to me the things to like about the film. And he's a bad motherfucker. Yeah. No, he's... Uh, I definitely think he's the best character in the film. Because Sam just gives such a fantastic performance. That that whole sequence when they burst into the, the room and interrogate the guys there. He's got such a commanding presence over the whole scene. It's really great. And he's this immediate intimidating force coming in. Even though he's he's giving off this sort of friendly demeanor. It's obviously a, you know an intimidation tactic. And it's absolutely phenomenal. What do y'all think of uh, John Travolta? He's so good in it. Is this his best? Yeah, is this he's... his best, or is it not his best? It's not his I best. Think it's, this. it's it's not his best because things like Blowout and uh, Saturday uh, Night yeah, Fever yeah, exist well, still. But it's up there. I don't there. care about Blowout, but now, yeah. uh, but it's still up there. Like this is obviously one of his career defining roles. This saved his career. What about from, Battlefield you know, Earth? What about it? <laughs> I was I was suggesting that that's his best, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Um. Never mind. Forget it. <laughs> Wait, do y'all not about know Battlefield Earth? That's the uh, Scientology film. Look, Sorry. Look, we, we watch good oh, we movies here. It. We watch good movies. Oh, bro. man. I went to the theater for that Battlefield Earth, and I felt, I felt pretty gypped as a kid. Uh, yeah, most of his movies nowadays are gypped. I guess that's where I was going with this, is this film revitalized his career, but... It it also sort of put him into a pigeonhole because like he started just doing these types of movies, like uh, mm-hmm. and he'll do it for nothing now. He'll play this character for like twenty bucks. Well, he's so done. He, I mean, it's weird because I'm wondering what's going to happen because he's got that weird role coming up this next month. It's called the Fanatic, where he's some the Fred Durst movie. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's some weird thing. It's totally different than what he's been doing lately. You know. Yeah, it's his directed by Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit, and uh, he gets followed, or he, he follows a guy around. Yeah, I think that he's sounds exciting. It's Fred, weird. Fred and Durst <laughs> directing? Uh-huh. I gotta see this movie. No, you, you, so he went from Tarantino to Durst. You gotta but, look up, but th- that's the eventual trajectory of his career. But yeah, I mean, you can see that... Uh, he's in good hands here. You know, Tarantino really knows how to handle Travolta, and he does his scenes great. And all his stuff with, uh, you know, Uma Thurman, they've got great chemistry as well. I actually like Uma here much better than I do in Kill Bill. I feel like Mia's character is is, is given a lot more depth, despite the time difference. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, she's really nice in this. Um, I'm trying to think. Christopher Walken is great. All, all the little oh, cameo scene- guys here are great. Let's talk about Christopher Walken, because that's the best scene in the movie. <laughs> Because he's got that great performance, that story is so well told, and you know you don't need that for the film, but it adds so much flavor, I think, and importance. Like it gives the watch real weight, you know, so you understand the significance going after it. Like I said, Walken's performance is just fantastic. I love it. It's interesting because Thurman's really iconic here, but I might prefer her in Kill Bill. Yeah, I mean, most people probably would. They like that that character, but I think Mia's character definitely has more character to her you know again it's the pulpy nature of kill bill we were talking about before 
I like Kill Bill because she doesn't get defined by, like, her husband or someone she's with. I don't think that's the case here with Mia, either. I don't think she's defined by Marcellus Wallace. They don't even really have a scene together. I just feel like the whole, like, structure of her character is, like, she's the wife and she's bored. And I don't think that. No, I, I think, uh... But I do see where Calvin's going with... I think I like The Bride more, just not necessarily in a film sense, like when I sit down and watch it, but when I think about the culture at large, I think about how special Kill Bill is versus her character as Mia, and I definitely see why people would like The Bride more. It's like Mark Hamill and Luke Skywalker. Is Luke Skywalker the best Mark Hamill character? Probably not, (laughs) but it's probably the most important. How how many more Mark Hamill characters can you really name that have more depth than Luke Skywalker? I don't even know how many more you can name. You can name Cockknocker, I guess. No, no, but you know what I'm saying what? though is like culturally. It's not that kind of podcast. Cu- culturally, the bride is and Kill Bill is monumental in some ways for at least Thurman. Yeah. Look, look, I didn't mean to derail the Pulp Fiction conversation. Look, David, to, you're to wrong about it. Kill Bill. It's, it's fine. Monumental for being better than Pulp Fiction. No, but our podcast is strictly deciding that Pulp Fiction is superior to Kill Bill by quite a few placements. I think think we're making a last-minute decision (laughs) to reinstate Kill Bill as the first place Tarantino. (laughs) I'm down for it. Kill Bill, uh, Django Unchained, Hateful Eight, Jackie Brown last. Let's put Jackie Brown in the last place. I'm done with this. I'm not saying last, just right after Reservoir Dogs. (laughs) That's last, you... You fucking assholes. You're just wanting to make me out to be the bad guy again. Is that how we're ending this? We're just going to bring it all down? This thing we've worked a oh. whole month on just so we can shit on David? Two hours in. I wait a whole two hours to spring this on you that we're revising the list. God, I should have seen this coming. <laughs> you really should have. I felt like the writing was on the walls for at least two weeks that we are this is, revising. It's just a long con so we can all make fun of David again and, and piss him off a little more. But uh, now that we're <laughs> wrapping up, how do y'all feel about the list? The real list, not not the list we're about to change. <laughs> oh, okay. So the fake list, the old list. Yes. I feel I feel really good about the list we came to. I feel like it was, it was pretty reflective of our feelings across the site, and I think of Tarantino's varied filmography. You know, and again, it's important to emphasize that these are all Good to great films. And, and the ranking doesn't super matter. It's more of an excuse for us to explore what we thought about them. And uh, I, I, no matter what, this list could probably change in a week and probably will change in, next time a Tarantino movie comes around. Yeah, all lists are very subjective. I think once people get out to Hollywood, I think the order of it would have changed. But uh, with that disclaimer on it, I feel like the rest is perfectly fine. I don't feel like there's any problems with it. Um, I'm sorry for Reservoir Dogs. (laughs) Oh, well. Yeah, I I think we can all say it's something had to be the bottom is unfortunate for Reservoir Dogs. But it makes sense because it is... A first effort, you know. I don't think that's an unfair placement. <laughs> that's what I. That's what I want to say, though. Even our bottom one was the top film for at least one person. So everything here was basically a top film for someone, which made it really and hard. That, and that shows, to go through and that shows all how this. special this filmography is, even if there's clear asterisks and like problems to it. They're all good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, asterisk next to Kill Bill because really it's first. <laughs>